we'd like to take a look at some interesting data that we've gathered onto the ah wow what were those words <laughs> you haven't even said shivana yet i mean come on yeah <laughs> data Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days and not-so-good old days of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and I'm joined by the master of the street fight, Alec Pridgen. I fight in the streets, what can I say? And the master of the bunkhouse match, John Mullins. It's always good to get on the top. (laughs) Uh, How's it going tonight, guys? Very good, very good. It's a little windy in my house, but that's good. It's probably the air. <laughs> it's generally good to have air where you live. Yes. 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 We've reached the end of the Starcade series. So tonight, we're taking a little time to have a look back at the series as a whole. So first, let's have a look back at the shows and some statistics about them. Starcade as a series ran from 1983 to 2000, covering a total of 18 shows. Beginning in the era of closed-circuit television, it soon converted over to pay-per-view. And that went well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Across its run, it had significant highs and drastic lows, ranging from a dismal 16,500, as you just referenced, Al, (laughs) to a terrific 650,000 pay-per-view buys. Though it most commonly hovered around the 100,000 to 175,000 range, with eight of its 14 pay-per-view shows in that range. That's pretty good numbers, honestly. Yeah, honestly, that's not bad at all. Especially for the time. Yeah. The top three Starcades in terms of pay-per-view buys were, in third place, Starcade 1996 at 240,000. In second place, Starcade 1998 at 450,000. Big jump. Yeah. And in first place, Starcade 1997 at 650,000. Craziness. The bottom three Starcades in terms of pay per view buys were in third place, Starcade 1995 at 95,000. Aw, it's actually a decent show. Yeah, it is. In second place, Starcade 2000 at 45,000. Wasn't a decent show. <laughs> and in first place, Thanks to Vince McMahon, Starcade 1987 at 16,500. Now, if that was attendance, that'd be good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that the first three years were, were all higher than that in its infancy. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. it takes a while for something to get going. Mm-hmm. Yep. It grew from like a baby to adulthood all 18 years. And <laughs> its teen <laughs> years were like the most volatile, so had the most at- attention needed. <laughs> yes. At least it got to the age where it could vote, you know? Yeah. For now. Just to include it as well, the highest closed circuit attendance was Starcade 1986 at 47,000, and the lowest was Starcade 1984 at 26,000. The series took place across eight different arenas in six states and Washington, D.C. North Carolina held the most shows, with five, with Washington, D.C. and Georgia tied for second with four each. Tennessee took third with three shows. 
Two shows, Starcades 1985 and 1986, took place in both North Carolina and Georgia. For arenas, South Carolina's Greensboro Coliseum, Georgia's Omni, and Washington, D.C.'s MCI Center are tied for first with four shows each, though the Omni and the Coliseum share Starcades 1985 and 1986. They don't get a half. No, they still get full credit. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Cheaters. Don't get to double it, though. No. In second place is Tennessee's Nashville Municipal Auditorium with three shows. For the actual arena attendance, the highest attended Starcades were, in third place, Starcade 1997 with 17,500. In second place, Starcade 1986 with 30,000. And in first place, Starcade 1985 with 32,000. However, the 1986 and 1985 numbers, as I mentioned above, include two arenas, so we should also take a look at the single arena numbers. So just to be clear, all three of them had larger physical attendance than the actual pay-per-view numbers for 87. Yes, yeah. Wow. That's that's pretty sad when you think about it, isn't it? I think it's marketing, really. Yeah. I know it's cheaper to just kind of go all in with like three or four people and have them come over and watch the show, though. So maybe that's what people were doing later on. (laughs) So the highest attendances for single arenas were, in third place, a three-way tie between the Omni for Starcade 1985, the Greensboro Coliseum for Starcade 1985, and the Greensboro Coliseum for Starcade 1986, with 16,000 each. So we had to get the exact same number in two different places at the exact same time. Yeah, these may be rounded slightly. I'm not sure on that. Sure, sure. (laughs) In second place, the MCI Center for Starcade 1998, with 16,066 people. And in first place, the MCI Center for Starcade 1997, with 17,500. There were quite a lot of matches on Starcade. In yeah. some cases, in some cases, I think we can agree it felt a bit excessive. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. In fact, eight of the 18 Starcades had 10 or more matches. The top three Starcades in terms of matches were, in third place, a three-way tie with Starcades 1985, 1986, and 1989, each of which had 12 matches. Dirty dozen. (laughs) Yeah. In second place, Starcade 1999 with 13 matches. Baker's dozen. Baker's dirty dozen. (laughs) Yeah. And in first place, Starcade 1990 with an incredible and rather annoying 14 matches. I believe that is a butcher's dozen. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I think so. No, I think that'd be if it was Starcade 1994. I was going to go with like a golf term, like a super albatross. <laughs> there you go. Quadruple birdie? No, that would be good. <laughs> yeah. There's no par There's no par sixes that I know. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, incidentally, three Starcades are tied for the lowest number of matches. Starcades 1987, 1988, and 1994 each had seven matches. It was quite a run across those 18 shows, and we looked at each show in turn, but now we'd like to take a look at a larger question. What exactly is Starcade as a series? What, if anything, is the series' identity? What themes are repeated, and what changes about the series over the years? So I think let's start with what I've always heard about Starcade, that it's WCW's version of WrestleMania. It's the most common... Yeah. The sentiment, yeah. 
It's always been a bit funny to hear that, given that Starcade came first. But history is written by the victors, after all. You'd think a spell checker would be enough to invalidate that claim. (laughs) (laughs) So, what does that comparison mean to you guys when someone says that Starcade is WCW's WrestleMania? What are they trying to say by that? I mean, the general idea, I think, is they're just saying it's their super show. It's the one that all their storylines of the year are supposed to be building up to. Mm-hmm. That's what WrestleMania is for the WWE, or WF at that point. In theory, it's, here's all these matches we spent five, six months, a year maybe sometimes, getting you to, and here's the payoff, everything else leads you back to here again. Mm-hmm. I think that your biggest show should just be interchangeable with your identity. Uh, like, you could take the w, WWF and replace it. Like, we're going to watch WrestleMania tonight, you know? like And that makes sense as a show. Okay. Mm-hmm. I get you. It, it has to be, uh, at least as an identity standpoint, interchangeable. It's the one that people think about when they think about your company? Absolutely. Like, okay. Bad marketing on their end. They could have called it something else, but... I think that, you know, when you talk about Starcade, you should immediately think of all the superstars. You should think of all those other things. And if someone forgot to say WCW, you could easily insert Starcade in there and they're like, oh, I know what you're talking about. Right. Okay. I get you. Yeah, I think we're on the same page on that. To, to me, it's this is the central show of the year is what people are trying to say in that case. It's the one that everything builds to. And it's the one that WCW would pull out all the stops to put on the biggest show that they possibly can. So given that, is that Starcade's identity? Early on, I don't think it is. By the end, I think they seem like they were going that direction. They mm-hmm. kind of falter the last show. But I mean, 98 is definitely a buildup of all these storylines it's like, what, six months of Goldberg's world title run and the push back to the NWO, whether it'll end or not, or come back again. 97 obviously has more than a year of buildup to the Sting-Hogan match. Mm-hmm. 96 doesn't quite work for that on its own, because 96's main event is only built up for like two months. But it is part of a larger story that started back in what, July, I think, is Bash of the Beach. So it kind of works that way, but early on, it definitely didn't start out that way. Mm-hmm. Really, other than Dusty said he's going to challenge whoever the winner is, admittedly on the what the third try, it took him to get the promo out because <laughs> yes. that sound oh, like cut out. Yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. I was looking back at him recently, like, oh right, poor Dusty had to cut that promo three times. <laughs> yes. Other than him challenging the winner of that match, it's not really a here's a three now you gotta watch a four based on this, right? It's really not until they get to 96, I would say, that we get in that mindset. Okay. Yeah, John, what's your feeling on that? Does it kind of feel like the central show for the company? or I've already compared this to a child. And I'm going to take a little more philosophical uh, approach to this and kind of take a couple pages from Joseph Campbell and talk about the hero's journey. Mm-hmm. Sure. Starcade is kind of like Achilles. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. In that... He's going to go through trials and labors and everything, but ultimately there's going to be certain things that happen. The Achilles heel, it will be their undoing mm-hmm. as a company through missteps and other people just delivering a final blow. And sometimes it's kind of like as they're sieging Troy is like going up against the WWF. Mm-hmm. See that. And Vince McMahon is a pretty good Paris, I think. <laughs> there <Yeah>. you go. <laughs> 
I know it's a little esoteric but we're out, out there. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think I get, I think I get where you're going at. Yeah, but yeah, it's sure. it's its hero, it's their baby, and they kind of live or die by it. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of growth in those formative years, and sometimes when they get the formula right, they just they either repeat it into I don't can't handle anymore because you know kind of Starcade's the Ric Flair show mm-hmm. <laughs> at For points. Sure. But I mean, that's in a lot of ways, that's good though. It's iconic. It's something that you expect. Yeah. And then they, when they try to twist it, it sometimes just falls apart or in some cases gains a lot of fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, I think the answer, which I, I think you guys are both getting at as well, is sometimes that it, that it sometimes serves this big central role. For, for me, I, I kind of feel like that is how the series starts. Maybe not for the entire show, but at least for the Flair and Dusty stuff for the first few years. There's this massive storyline that the show revolves around, or is at least all like punching towards. And I know we get a bunch of random stuff from other companies too, but at least there's this like, the reason you're coming to see this show is Flair versus Dusty. Mm-hmm. And it's a like three year storyline. Yeah. And I think 1986 would have felt like that too, except the Magnum TA accident happens. Mm-hmm. So, so you derail a lot of plans. 1987 feels reasonably focal with a bunch of stuff around Horsemen, though the world title feud is only about two months old there. And 1988 again feels very focal that Flair versus Luger has been going on for a little while yeah. and uh, is reaching its culmination there. So at least if you're looking at kind of the world title picture, I think that there's a lot in those early shows that feel like, okay, this is the, we're building to this. Mm across a year but then 1989 happens <laughs> the double iron man tournaments and certainly there are story points to those but it doesn't feel like a focal point show it's more of a weird experiment and from then on starcade seems to vary quite a bit so you've got 1990 that feels very focal if strange with the black scorpion angle yeah. but 1991 and 1992 are back to almost total non-storyline stuff yeah, true. 1993 and 1994, back to focal, but 1995 is another tournament. And then 1996 through 2000, I agree with you, Al. I think at that point, they're like, yes, this is our big show of the year that everything's building towards. Though 1999 is so hyperactive, I really can't say that anything relates to anything truly important. <laughs> yeah. And 2000 is quite focal with its villain, but not so much with its hero. Mm-hmm. So I guess for me... I do think that Starcade manages to be a focal point show for much of its run, but is that enough for it to be WCW's WrestleMania? I'm not sure. For one thing, WCW rarely ends its feuds at Starcade. True. In many of the instances that we've kind of talked about, something strange would happen, as I think you were getting at, John, that would keep the feud going to be resolved later, or would just leave it lacking a resolution. That's like Rhodes winning the title at 1985, only to be stripped of it because of interference that he'd successfully countered. Yeah. Piper beating Hogan at 96, but it turning out that the match wasn't even for the title, and Hogan just acting like he won. Sting winning the title at 97, only to be stripped of it because of a non-fast fast count. Yeah. Nash beating Goldberg at 1998, only for things to go weirdly sideways with the finger poke of doom. Sideways is an understatement, yeah. Yes. And, of course, Hart keeping the title at 1999, but giving it up only to form the NWO and then have to retire. So, yeah, as you pointed out at the time, John, three years in a row, they failed to end their storyline properly toward the end there. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Yep. But for another thing, 
being the focal point and ending point of storylines is not all that defines WrestleMania, to which we're comparing Starcade right now. WrestleMania is also the show where the WWF often pulls out all the stops, putting on the biggest spectacle that they can in terms of stunts, gimmicks, glitz, and glamour, or celebrity involvement. And Starcade only sometimes manages that, I think. 94, I think, is probably the closest they get. Mm-hmm. 94 has the interesting Mr. T match. Yes. And uh, some there's some other people surrounding that. Yeah. Yeah, they have the award ceremony stuff, which I hated, but is them doing some more pomp and circumstance of, of things. Mm-hmm. 93 is another one that kind of gets that there's something special going on here mm-hmm. with yeah. the Ric Flair stuff throughout it. We get notable, if confusing, celebrity involvement at Starcade 1984, 1992, and 1994, but otherwise there's not much of that going on. If the idea is to get people watching the product who don't normally, we might also count 1990 and 1995 for involving wrestlers who weren't normally part of the show. And 1992 does that as well, but you know we've already counted that. As far as pulling out the big stunts, sure, that happens from time to time. We get a couple shows revolving around the scaffold match, for instance. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yay. I didn't say they were all good. True, true, true. And a couple around Battle Bowl. We get a number of major storylines that up the ante with notable gimmicks, like the Magnum Tully I Quit match or the Piper Valentine Dog Collar match. We get a variety of cage matches, or even the Tuxedo Street Fight between Valiant and Jones, if you want to count a true abomination. Mm-hmm. But certainly, Starcade does have a lot of points where you see special match types that aren't normally held. At the same time, though, a lot of the run features fairly standard singles and tag matches where the only really notable thing is the storyline. I'm not sure that this is the show where they're pulling out all the stops in terms of like the match types that they're putting on. Yeah, I can see that. Especially early on, it's just, let's take different people from different regional territories right, yeah, and get them a match. That. So the person in, you know, NWA Florida might not have been building up to some big dangerous match with somebody, so they just don't have one on the show. Right. I think the show is kind of built on experimentation. Mm-hmm. Sure. To really say that they're pulling anything out, they can't pull every all the stunts out because they don't have a good idea of what actually works. Yeah. And anytime they find something that works, they omit it <laughs> from the next show, pretty much. Good point. Yeah, yeah. It's more about experimentation, and they take out some of the, the, the key elements and replace it with something that, frankly, doesn't stand up. So the, the one beautiful thing or horrible thing about Starcade is each year it can be a polar opposite of the next. So you have no idea what you're going to get reading who's on the card or who's coming up and paying attention throughout the year kind of is going to indicate what you're going to get usually. Yeah. Usually, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. And then the last uh, thing that I mentioned for kind of defining WrestleMania is the glitz and glamour. So I guess, yeah, what's what's you guys feeling on that part of Starcade? Like, the, just the, like, bigness and epicness of presentation, where it just, like, feels, regardless of what's actually going on on the show, just, like, feels like a bigger show. Early on, definitely not. I mean, Flair's robes aside. <laughs> yeah. Those are always a thing, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that was the, the most glamour and glitzed bowling alley i've ever seen <laughs> yes yes that's absolutely for sure <laughs> but otherwise it just it'd be someone holding like a sheet in front of the entryway and someone walks through it or they that one year they try to do like flash paper or something oh my gosh really i work. forgot about that yeah i, I just that where visual. you can actually see the fa- the flash paper that's still on fire slowly falling from the sky above the crowd and like oh my gosh go out before you hit <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
No, they they switched from illuminated flags to lasers to other types of projections. Not consistently, but they have tried. They have certainly tried to add glitz and glamour. The only thing that has been consistent has been Flair's robes, except for a few matches, you know. But I think that's just a stylistic choice. Mm-hmm. And they did try to bring in Super Bowl rings and never gave them to them. Oh, yes. Yep. We definitely have one, though, for sure. I feel like it's, again, one, I think, you know, the same way you guys are, are saying, is like, they do it, but it's inconsistent. Across the run, I've noted many times how plain the set can feel and how, how underwhelming the entrances can often be. Some shows really stand out. I recall really liking the set for 1989, for instance, with everybody posed on those platforms oh, yeah. above the stage and then they walk down the stairs to the, right. to the ring. That was really cool. But others, like 1999 and 2000, just don't have much of an epic feel to them as far as the presentation is concerned. Here's a big drape in front of the uh, <laughs> yeah. screen and we'll just put yeah. the logo on it. Yeah. You know, WrestleMania would often have something really special happen, like Shawn Michaels' zipline entrance in 1996, or the ring carts uh, entrances at WrestleMania 3 in 1987. Or Poole riding on the camels, WrestleMania 9. <laughs> or Diamond Dallas Page driving Rhythm and Blues to the ring in 1990's uh, WrestleMania 6 yeah, yeah. in his uh, pink Cadillac. That did happen, yes. That is true, yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of showmanship at WrestleMania, special entrances or aspects to the presentation that just didn't happen at any other show. That just generally isn't the case with Starcade. Even the entrances that are special, like Starcade 1997's emo poetry entrance for Sting, oh, yeah. kind of come off underwhelming in some other way. And the ones that don't come off underwhelming, like Goldberg's entrances or Luger's 1999 entrance, they're just the entrance the wrestler is always doing. There's no upgrade for, yeah. for Starcade. At least they upped the ante for the Black Scorpion. <laughs> That's true. He heard <laughs> that glorious... The weird UFO. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, Yeah. That had to be one of Flair's shining moments. (laughs) Oh, man. So with all that, yeah, I'm not sure that the comparison between Starcade and WrestleMania is as clear-cut as it might seem on the surface. I would propose instead that across the Starcades, we see five identities, into which each individual show may or may not fit. Okay. We have Focal Point Starcades, Pivot Starcades, Experimental Starcades, that's all of them. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Partnership Starcades and Undermined Starcades. <laughs> so focal point shows we've already discussed. These are the Starcades that end up as the culmination of a storyline that's been running for months or longer, providing a big match that at least should be the finish of that storyline, whether or not it actually works out. Mm-hmm. Until Nitro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially in the later shows. So... For examples of those, I'd call out like 1984, 1985, 1988, 1990, 1993, 1997, and 1998. All of these clearly fit into this category, and others debatably could. Mm-hmm. Pivot shows are those that, instead of ending storylines, change them into something new. For instance, 1984 doesn't end Flair versus Rhodes, but it uses a admittedly confusing referee ruling oh. to push it into 1985 and to up the intensity. Mm-hmm. 1989 uses the end of the Iron Man tournament to start showing tension between Flair and Sting, which will lead to their conflict. Well, yeah, the point of that one is that Sting is an outsider. They realize he's an actual threat, so they bring him in on that show. Yeah. 
1994 resolves a storyline in Hogan vs. Butcher, but immediately introduces Hogan's next challenger, Invader. 1998 throws everything for a loop in Nash vs. Goldberg, and 1999 does similarly with Hart vs. Goldberg. So it isn't always good, but there's often some notable pivot in these types of shows. Experimental shows, like you noted, John, are very common as well. These are the shows where Starcade was used to try something different with all or much of the show. Most of the time, it's some kind of tournament, but it also experiments in presentation. So these are shows like 1985 and 1986, which ran at multiple arenas, as well as 1989, 1990, 1991, 1992, four years in a row there, and 1995, which all consisted in whole or in part of tournaments with the Iron Man Tag and Singles Tournaments, the Pat O'Connor Memorial Tag Tournament, the Battle Bowls, and the WCW versus New Japan competition. Sometimes an experimental show can also be a focal point show, but more often they tend to be mutually exclusive. However, they are frequently also pivot shows, using the ending of the tournament or a special event to kick off a new storyline or change an existing one. 89's got a weird aspect of that, too, where there is one system commentator throughout the entire show, which is Jim right, Ross. yes. But then for the singles ones, it's him and Terry Funk. Mm-hmm. And for the tag ones, it's him and Jim Cornette. So poor Jim Ross is stuck there the whole night, and these people get to come and go, you know, grab a drink, sit down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just chill for a while. <laughs> so partnership shows are the shows that bring in people that you wouldn't normally see or those which intentionally highlight multiple territories. The early shows from 1983 through 1987 frequently fall into this category as we see matches involving the titles of multiple smaller promotions, and in 1987, matches used to bring in wrestlers from the newly purchased UWF. Mm-hmm. I see that. But we still get flashes of this in 1990, 1992, and 1995. Mm-hmm. While Jim Crockett promotions in WCW would usually take center stage, many Starcades do spread the wealth, as it were. Yeah, I could see that. Sure. Definitely adds some extra interest and flavor because, you know, you're going to get something new that year. Mm -hmm. You might be more inclined to make that extra trip or pay for pay-per-view. Yeah. A lot of the time, I think we've found this aspect of the Starcades really interesting. Yeah. That um, people like Zangiev and Hashimikov at 1990, I believe that one was, the, the Russian team there, and the WSW New Japan stuff at 95. Mm -hmm. Those Mm -hmm. people that they bring in on a temporary basis are often really intriguing and interesting to watch. Yeah. But then at the same time, you have Liger. He's the weird exemption, but also proving of that role. Because he's come and gone several times through these shows. Mm-hmm. So he's back in New Japan as if that's a New Japan thing, but, but he's also been there before. So it's looking yeah. No, I think 95 is, when you, when you were listing off the types, 95 was really the only one that kind of jumped into my mind at all as partnering up. Because every single star that they brought over were superstars over in Japan. Mm-hmm. And I think just about every one of them gave a, a stellar performance against oh, yeah. their yeah. United States counterpart or combat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's one of the more intriguing aspects of Starcade is that in that it is not necessarily a focal point show for WCW. It can often be a showcase of these partnerships or of these other territories exposing you to people that you don't normally see. Yeah. Which 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 opposes its use as WCW's WrestleMania, right. but presents it with an interesting identity of its own. It's like the one I guess nineteen ninety seven Royal Rumble where they're having issues with attendance and with mm-hmm. 
attract stars, so it's them in AAA. And so it's a bunch of random AAA people in matches that never appear before or since. Right. And finally, there's the Undermined category. Now, this isn't a category that WCW would have planned any Starcades to fall into, but it does happen with an unfortunate frequency. True. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it's unexpected injuries, preventing matches entirely, bad booking decisions rendering a match disappointing, post-match or post-show changes reversing the ending of a match, or the infamous January curse. Yes. Starcade frequently ends up surprisingly unimportant, or even almost meaningless in the end. It isn't an identity I'd want to assign a show into, but I can certainly do that with a surprising number, especially if we look at a show's immediate aftermath. 1984, 1985, 1986, 1997, 1998, and 1999 are all very clear examples, to one degree or another. Yeah. Kind of bunched up at the beginning and end there. That's yeah, that's true. Then. I guess maybe while well, they're figuring it out, and then when they've forgotten how to do everything. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. So, given all of that, what is Starcade? It's multifaceted. It's often a focal point, but often more of a pivot than an ending. It's frequently experimental, and it's how Jim Crockett Promotions and WCW showed off their partnerships locally and globally. And sadly, it's a show that often doesn't go as planned, or that sets up an interesting angle and sees it go wildly off course soon after. It has a complex identity, not a unified one. But across 18 years, could it have been otherwise, really? There's so much that changes across its run, so many different things that the company tries, that its first supercard is almost certainly going to get caught up in all of that. And that, I think, brings us finally to its true identity. Starcade is WCW. (laughs) It may not be WCW's WrestleMania, the show that planned to be the big central show for the year, at which everything will come to a head and the company will pull out all the stops. But what it is, is the clearest representation of the state of the company itself. Is the company working on its partnerships with all the territories, or with New Japan? Starcade gathers them together. Is the company looking for new stars and new angles? Starcade gives them a shot. Is the company in good health with a lot of potential? Starcade shows the signs of what might be coming. And is the company coming up on a big stumble or about to experience a downturn? Starcade is the canary in the coal mine. <laughs> it may not always be planned as WCW's central show, but it always shows what is central to the company itself at any given time. WCW's highs and lows, its successes and its struggles, those come out of the backstage area and offices and onto the TV screen in Starcade. That, I think, is Starcade's identity in the end. Starcade is WCW. Yeah, it's definitely a checkup or a status report. <laughs> yeah. And having seen other WCW shows, not for our show yet, but having seen other other series, I don't think that there's another series that I've seen so far that really feels so identifiably this is the state of the company. Mm. And it's in part because other ones have these stronger identities themselves right? that I don't think you get to feel it as much. And that's something we can see if you know we still feel that way as we go through other series. But with Starcade, I think the very fact that it doesn't necessarily have its own strong identity that is just this oldest show of the company 
helps it to fully reflect what's going on in the company at that time. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. It's kind of the the blank slate on which the company can paint. <laughs> right. Or the picture that they can reveal. Like it's already there. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. To, they just have to remove the, the veil and see where we're at. <laughs> yep. Back to what I was saying before, it has to be interchangeable. And mm-hmm. I didn't think of Starcade at all when I thought of WCW, but they are intrinsically like bonded. I, mm-hmm. I can't see it any other way. And most of my WCW thing was just a video game. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah. It's nice to see a lot of the interplay develop. I think Starcade is is not it's not like WrestleMania in that it's able to be used interchangeably with the company name, like with WWF from WrestleMania as much, at least in in, in conversation with people that maybe aren't into it as much. Right. But at the same time, it is like you said, it is intrinsically tied to the company. It is their first. It is their first show their first big supercard. And because of that, it just seems to have this this deep-seated tie to whatever's going on, whatever the status of the company is at this point. And you just see that coming out so heavily on the screen. And it's not even something that they plan. It's not something that they, they push out there. Mm-hmm. It's just, this is the show that it's their mirror. It's their reflection. Yeah. So we've had a look at the Starcade stats, but now we'd like to take a look at some interesting data that we've gathered on the performers who appeared on the shows. All right, so we're going to do this with a little bit of a little bit of a quiz thing, and I'm kind of hoping that you guys haven't been paying attention to the times that I've um, revealed <laughs> revealed some of this to you between the shows, but we'll see. I can promise you, I have not <laughs> been paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if I should say good to that or not, but. Good, we'll say that. honest here. (laughs) Okay. First up, who appeared as a competitor in the most matches? Any guesses? During the beginning, I would swear it has to be Flair, because he's the main focus of the first, at least the first half of the Mm -hmm. shows. But then I'm trying to think how many gaps he has from being gone, and then just not being on the show from injury. Mm -hmm. I mean, he feels like the safest guess. Okay. I'm not sure if it's correct, but it feels like the safest guess. What do you think, John? Ooh, I'm 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 gonna go for like one of the Andersons. Uh, <laughs> you want you want Art or Oli? Well, uh, let's do Arn. Okay, it's definitely not Oli. I know he's your favorite. I'm hoping that that's why we <laughs> put this together. All right. Well, unfortunately, Arn may be my favorite, but he was not WCW's favorite. It looks like so he's not in the top three. Oh well. So top three appearances as a match competitor. Here we go. In uh, third place is Rick Steiner, with 11 appearances as a competitor. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that, that was my first thought, yep. yeah. Second place is a tie between Lex Luger and Ric Flair, mm-hmm. each with 14 appearances. Ah. And in first place, this is Sting, with an amazing 17 appearances as a competitor. So all of these guys had multiple Stargates where they appeared in more than one match. I agree with the the star power there in that order. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although, <laughs> Rick Steiner is a bit of a surprise. Scott was very close as well. They both get a high number of matches between 1989 and 1990 because they're in two tournaments 
two consecutive uh, oh, tournaments yeah, there. But Rick, Rick appears first. Though. Rick, Rick just has another another couple Starcades where he appears. That's true. Speaking of Starcade appearances, so who appeared as a competitor on the most shows? So not looking at individual matches. So you're looking at the number of Starcades that this person appeared on. Hmm. I feel like that's got to be Flair then, because he's he's pretty strong. Except the first, at least half of the run of the show. Mm-hmm. Just counting once, once for each show, probably Flair, but I've been wrong so far. So, <laughs> no, Flair's a good choice because mm-hmm. he comes back. <laughs> yes, yeah, later on. Yeah. And I've already said that it's the Ric Flair show. Let's let's yep. double down on this one, Al. All right, mm-hmm. sounds good. So, yeah, as you might expect, this is actually a very similar list. In third place is Rick Steiner with seven. <laughs> He's on seven shows. In second place is Lex Luger with ten shows. And in first place is a tie between Sting and Ric Flair with 11 shows. Well, there you go. That's fascinating to me because both of them have 11 shows. On those 11 shows, Ric Flair manages 14 matches and Sting manages 17 matches. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Is that incredible? Well, there are some shows where... Doesn't he have three in one show? There are a couple, actually. We are counting Battle Bowls, obviously. Oh, yeah. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah, Sting has... Uh, let's see, three matches on Starcade 89, because that's the Iron Man tournament. I believe two matches on the first Battle Bull show, and then three matches again on the second Battle Bull show. Because also in Vader separately. Because, because he fights Vader separately. And then uh, three matches on Starcade 95 as well. Oh, yeah. Because he's part of the WCW versus New Japan, but he's also, sorry, two matches on that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he also has the triangle match on that. So he has a lot of shows where he has multiple matches. Which tells you something, I think, about how dependable they found Sting yeah. as a performer. 95 is the one where the storyline is that Flair is trying to get invented by not taking part of the tournament. But ultimately, he wrestles two matches in the same he show as well. He also wrestles two matches, yes. It just his second one is for the world title. Yep. But that's matches overall. So, who was a competitor in the most main events? Now, quick note here. I am only counting actual main events that is the final aired match of the show wcw likes to say that there's multiple main events on several shows in fact on 1989 jr claimed that every single match was the main event so we're talking about the closing match i have to draw a line to make this make any sense my categorization though does mean that 1991 and 1992's battle bowls are considered the main events i think that's fair but just bear that in mind so any guesses on that? Who was the competitor with the most main events? Sting, Luger, or Flair? <laughs> okay. Um, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm sorry, I'm counting matches right now. <laughs> I'm so lazy when I do this. I sound so lazy when I do this, but I feel like you keep saying, saying Flair because it feels like the right answer every time. I'm going to change my order. <laughs> okay. Flair, Sting, and then Luger. All right. John, John going for the gold with, uh, with trying to guess the top three. There we go. Okay, well, here we go. Let's see how close you got. In third place, a tie between Hulk Hogan and Big Van Vader. I guess so. Each has three matches. Vader, uh, two of them are battle bulls. True, true, yeah. In second place, Sting. Yeah. With five main events. Because he didn't actually main event until 89, I believe. Because 89 is he's the final match ticket flair. Yep. And in first place was probably fairly obvious, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I injected just enough doubt. <laughs> yes, you did. 
It's Ric Flair with 10 main events. Flair, in fact, was in the main event of every single Starcade from 1983 through 1990. And again, in 1993 and 1995. I forgot that. In fact, he was in the main event of every Starcade on which he was a competitor, except for one. That's 1998. He also appeared on 2000, but did not actually have a match. That's true, yeah. So that's kind of an amazing record there. Yeah. <laughs> Woo. Yeah, I forgot 95. I was like, I was counting them out. I'm like, I had nine. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot 95. Or something because he gets yep. yep. And Savage. A show is not just about competitors, though. There's all sorts of other roles to fill. So let's start out with the people you hear all night long. What's is in my head? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. the commentary team. Sorry. Oh, no, the commentary team. Yes. <laughs> the most matches called by commentator. Who do you think has the most matches called? Shivani. That seems like a pretty safe bet, because he's he's only misses one show. Now, to be fair, there's a couple where they're split, so... Mm-hmm. Brain would be my second guess. It's like a pretty good street, yeah. He's got 94 to 99, yeah. Yeah, let's make this interesting. Who do you think is in second place, Al? John's betting Bobby the Brain Heenan. Ooh. Timber who... The shows with the most, there was way too many matches, like who calls all of them. I feel like it's got to be Shivani and then Bob Cottle, maybe. Okay. I'm going to go with third, Jim Ross. You got a third place guess, Al? Let's see. It's not Johnny Weaver. So I can cross (laughs) him off the list. (laughs) Johnny Weaver has the called too many matches award, I think, even for the limited (laughs) amount that he called. I feel like I've got to have Shivani, Cottle, and Heaton. I don't know if I don't know if I have Cottle and Heaton in the right order. Not enough, Dusty. <laughs> That's true. In third place is Bobby the Brain Heenan. Hey. With forty-six <sighs> matches. In second place is Jim Ross, good old JR, with sixty matches. Woo. And in first place is indeed Tony Shivani earning his title as the voice of WCW with 108 matches called across the Starcade run. He has more than both of them combined then? Yes, just barely. Yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so no real surprise that he's in the lead as Shivani appears as a commentator on 12 of the 18 Starcades. That's twice JR's six Starcades. In third is a Bob-centric tie between Bobby Heenan and Bob Cottle with five Starcades each. There you go. Because he was an yeah, he was an early lead guy. Yeah. I thought he might have made it. And I only guess Shivani is because back in I think it was either eighty five or eighty six, he makes his first appearance and you're like, You're gonna like this guy. He's gonna be around yeah. for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Is he the greatest commentator in the history of our sport? <laughs> you know what? He can't beat tonight. He can have that for tonight. Next up, what about managers? What's your guess for who managed in the most matches? Ooh. I feel like it's got to be Paul Jones. He was there a lot. He was there a lot, yeah, definitely. Now, he is also covering a small area, so it's possible someone took him long-term, but at a certain point, managers stopped being as much a thing, so... Forgive me for not remembering his name, but who was the manager in 95? Sonny Ono. Oh! That's who I'm going to choose, because that's a whole Starcade. <laughs> yep. And almost a half, because he gets overlap with the next mm-hmm. In third place... A tie between Paul Ellering and Harley Race, who each have six. That's true, yeah. In second place is Paul Jones, with seven matches managed. Yeah, which is funny because Harley Race was technically the manager for the Kongs. 
But for a reason, he just it not doesn't show up. Yeah. yeah so he, he, he could have tied it if they'd done that. And in first place, we actually have a tie. Oh. One part is Sonny Ono. Yeah. The other is J.J. Dillon. Oh, of course. Oh, good call. They each have 10 matches that they manage, but Ono has the uh, noteworthy achievement of seven of those appearances being on a single show, yes. that being Starcade 1995. Yes. <laughs> good, good, good call, John. <laughs> yeah, he has a couple more on the next show as well. Yeah. And then he has one more appearance as the Cats manager is where he gets his 10th one. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's true. Next up, referees. Who refereed the most matches? Now, I'm going to specify that I am counting any referee appearance here, whether they are the initial assigned ref, came out to replace the referee after a ref bump, or came out to rectify a referee's call. So any guesses on that for referee work in a match in general? I I need to know who the most honest referee is first. (laughs) That would be Nick Patrick. That's who I'm going to go with. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I feel like he's a solid pick. Some reason I was not on the last show at all for some reason. So that might mess it mess with it. Yeah, that's my best guess as well. Nick Patrick? Yeah, go with that. All right. In third place, Tommy Young with 15. He was a notable referee during a bunch of the early shows. Yes, that's true. In second place, Randy Anderson oh, with yeah. 22. And in first place, good old Nick Patrick. The most honest referee in the business, <laughs> with awesome. 36 matches refereed. Now, uh, just to note, if we take only their appearances as the initial assigned referee, then each actually only loses one appearance. Oh. That does add Mike Atkins to the list, tying Tommy Young's new total of 14. So we've talked a lot about the people with a ton of appearances, but what about the people with the fewest? Well, I'm not going to list those off because, in fact, there are 123 people who only show up for a single match in any capacity on a Starcade. I know. I, I looked through it to pick my yeah. best and worst. <laughs> I found some interesting names among them, though, considering either historical significance or how much they impressed us. So people with only a single appearance that I found found rather interesting. Stephen Riegel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ultimo Dragon. Oh, yeah. Jean-Paul Levesque otherwise known as Triple H, Shinjiro Otani, Raven, Chris Jericho, oh, yeah. Magnum TA, Sadly. Greg Valentine, eh. and Steve Mongo McMichael. Even less eh. <laughs> <laughs> but it is interesting. I yeah. mean, Mongo's one of the horsemen, Yeah, but he only has one Starcade match. It's true. He has a terrible promo on... One of them, but and, yeah. and to be clear, these are people. This is any capacity. This is not just as competitors. Mm. These are people that only show up under any capacity one time associated with a match. Do you have all those guest judges? Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm <laughs> counting like guest judges and things like that. I don't count them being in the crowd at 1997. Mm. So a few people had multiple appearances right. by doing that, but that's not associated with a particular right. match. So yeah, a few of these did show up on another show. Like, Magnum TA conducted interviews on other shows. Right. Mongo McMichael was interviewed on another show. Valentine and Ultimo Dragon showed up in the audience. But as far as actual match appearances, these are all some really surprising single-timers. And there's quite a number of Match of the Night winners on that list. Regal, Dragon, Levesque, Otani, Magnum, and Valentine all earned Match of the Night honors on their single match appearance. 
You missed one. Did I? For our last one. Batman Bigelow and Mike Awesome. That's true. Yeah. It's awesome you remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> last but not least, let's take a look at who's taken home the coveted Match of the Night and MVP awards the most. So first up, for each host. <laughs> Guys, who do you think Al gave MVP to the most? Oh, <laughs> Ric Flair. John's guessing Ric Flair? I think I gave Eddie at least two. I can't remember if I gave him three. Good good guesses from both, because actually it's a tie. <laughs> it's a tie between Ric Flair and Eddie Guerrero with two each. There you go. They are the only people that received MVP more than once from you. Yeah. All right. John, who do you guys think John gave MVP to the most? Liger? Well, I, I know who that is, for sure. <laughs> who do you think it is, John? Dusty Rhodes. All right, yep. Ah, uh, that's true. John is right. Dusty Rhodes got John's MVP three times. I know, because I was the only one that voted for him. <laughs> because <laughs> you guys would not do it. Uh, he was always really, really close on, oh, on yeah. a lot of his appearances, yeah. I believe his final one he gets for when he's a member of the commentary team on 95. Al, choosing any luchador or luchador light or cruiserweight is a good call. <laughs> That's a very good call, yeah. That's a- and for me, who do you guys think I gave MVP to the most? Arn Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the same vote as a totally Blanchard. Actually... This is Sting. Oh, of course. Should have thought of that. With three awards. Now we'll go to the really interesting thing. Who do you guys think got the most MVPs overall, adding up all the hosts? Sting or Flair? I feel like Flair's actually lower than you might think, which is weird. Sting is a pretty safe one. You have to say Sting or maybe, maybe Tully, because he's crossed over with enough stuff. Third place. <laughs> Is an eight-way tie. <laughs> Come on, Dusty. We're so decisive. <laughs> Come on, Dusty. Between Roddy Piper, oh, yeah. Jeff Jarrett, Diamond Dallas Page, Jushin Thunder Liger, Eddie Guerrero, Rick Steiner, Vader, and Cactus Jack, with two votes each. In second place is a four-way tie. <laughs> Come on, Dusty. Between Ricky Steamboat, yeah, Dusty Rhodes. There you go. Nikita Koloff, and Lex Luger, oh, yeah. with three MVP awards each. And in first place is a two-way tie <laughs> between Ric Flair and Sting, with five each. Oh my gosh. Yep. There you go. Woo. All right, so that's MVPs. Now, the other award that we always give is Match of the Night. So, Match of the Night participations, and we're only looking at competitors here, <clears throat> not referees or managers. Who do you think competed in Al's match of the night choices the most? He likes Guerrero. Mm-hmm. He likes Guerrero a lot. I'm going to go with him, and I'm going to go with Thunder Liger for fun. Okay. Guerrero and Thunder Liger. Who do you think, Al? See how well you know yourself. Yeah, right. <sighs> Man. I think it might even might be Nikita uh, sneaking in there. I'm trying to remember when I've given... Too. I think I got a couple times from him. I think you did give him a couple times, yeah. Yeah. So probably him or Eddie's a solid pick or even Dark Horse, at least for me, is DDP. Okay. It is actually Ricky Steamboat. Oh, of course. Yeah. With four Match of the Nights from you. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. All right. For John, 
Who do you think competed in John's match of the night choices the most? <laughs> I think I know this one. Go for it. I'm going to go with Legion of Doom. They definitely got a lot of praise from you in the in the shows they uh, they showed up. I don't. I can't recall if I actually gave them the match tonight, but like I definitely talked a lot about like Skywalker's, and I talked about some other matches. Okay. Al, who do you think? Liger's a solid, pretty solid pick. I would say. I have to remember how Dusty's matches end up because sometimes you can get it from other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we either those two or maybe even complete the score book. Complete it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think Sting might sneak in there as well. Okay. All right. Well, here's your answer. It's a four-way tie. Woo. Hey, we have Tully Blanchard. Hey, look at that. Hawk. Animal, and Sting, with three each. And Blanchard is just the heart of the Scorpahawk. <laughs> there you go. He's the Blanchard. Yes. And it is an animal. All right. And for me, who do you think competed in my match of the night choices the most? Probably Sting. I think I saved bet. I'm going to go with that. And I'm going to throw in Luger. And then Flair at the end. Okay. You guys are completely wrong, actually. Yeah. We have a three-way tie between Diamond Dallas Page. I should have thought of GP. Tully Blanchard. Yeah. Yeah. And, of course, Arn Anderson. Each has three. And finally, who do you think competed in the most matches of the night as voted by everyone? If multiple people voted for the same match, then it comes right, multiple right. times. I mean, strong competitors, obviously, you'd have Sting and Steamboat. I think through a combination of them, I think Tully ends up being there, but I'm not 100% mm-hmm. sure. Because he's in like singles and tag match, so it throws off that a little bit. Steamboat's in there. Because we've always given him high praise anytime. Even if we're not yeah. giving him MVP, we're, we're making sure that that match is at least highlighted by one yeah, of he us. He definitely got a lot of cases where, where we called him, yeah. I think Vader's going to be potentially in the third. Okay. And I got to go with Sting. Okay. Sting and Flair are just two. You can't remove them from Starhade. Okay. Sure. But you can remove them from our match of the night top three. <laughs> in third place is a tie between Arn Anderson and Diamond Dallas Page with six each. Oh, wow. In second place is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat with seven. And in first place, just barely edging Steamboat out, is Tully Blanchard with eight. Which is particularly impressive considering he was only on four Starcades from 1984 through 1987. So in his early short run, he amassed a total that no one ever overcame yeah. of Match of the Nights. Yeah, and he had no way to come back to wrestling. He right. was actually out of wrestling yeah. after like 1990. That, that's incredible to me. That tells yeah. you how dependable that guy was. Yeah, yeah. Or he just went up against good people. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> But yeah, he, he was like the dependable sting of that era, I would think. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> For sure, yeah, I see that. With all the data out of the way, it's time to give out some series awards. So each show, we've awarded our match of the night and MVP, but now we're going to look at things across the entire series. So to start off, let's go for our series MVPs. I'm not cruel enough to make you pick a single person, so we're going to narrow it down to three, and you don't have to put them in any kind of order. It's just three people you want to highlight. So who are your series MVPs? 
it has to be this is Sting. Mm-hmm. Sure. For one, Jushin Liger, Dusty Rhodes. There you go. Can I honorable mention two people? Mm-hmm. Of course. Uh, both water Pokemon, Steamboat and Glacier. <laughs> <laughs> Glacier managed yeah. to somehow appear without even doing anything. It's amazing. He was an MVP. No, yeah, no, yeah, it's fine. It's uh, he's funny. he's saved. He was he was saving that show. I think without even being there. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think honestly, if I had guessed beforehand, I would have been pretty close to that. That those all clearly stood out for you across the shows. That's good. Dusty to me spans both WWF and WCW. In my opinion, either you know either him or his kid. I, I get them confused all yeah. the time. Anyway, yeah. but. <laughs> They they did appear together, be fair. They appeared yeah. they appeared together at both promotions, yeah. Yep. But it's definitely one of those things that I, I, I associate with wrestling in general. And he's a great commentator too, so and I was just enamored with Jushin Liger, and of course there's no de- denying that I, I have a, an affinity for Sting. I mean who sure. who doesn't? <laughs> right? Mine are probably not that surprising either. I have Ricky Steamboat. Okay. Argue with the ultimate old school wrestling good guy. Mm-hmm. I have Vader, the classic indestructible heel. Yep. His work in the three submitted Mega Heel and Constant World Champion Ric Flair as somehow a sympathetic underdog. Yes. In this match is amazing. Yeah. Always World Champion somehow. You're like, there's no way he can win this match and become champion again. Mm-hmm. And he's this guy who's constantly cheating and getting advantages. And here he is. You really want, you want to see him win. It's amazing. Yeah. Turn just so one does. And obviously, number three for me is Eddie Guerrero. He's there's a lot in a really condensed area. And for me, even when he wasn't in the best matches at the show, like 97, for instance, his forms were so good, I had to give him MVP, which I gave him that year. Yeah. Well, for my series MVP, since Starcade is such a lengthy series, I wanted to pick people who were notable across the span of the series. Sure. People who not only had good performances or helped my enjoyment of shows, but who did it for a significant portion of the series or across the eras that it covered. So there's a lot of people who could certainly make a claim to being series MVPs based on a small number of appearances, but I'm making a significant number of appearances a requirement for mine. So that brings it down to my three. Okay. My three are Ric Flair, Mr. Starcade, as Tony Schiavone once put it, mm-hmm. a simply great performer across all his appearances and the absolute focal point of all the early Starcades. He absolutely has to be on my list. Extremely reliable and one of the greatest in-ring performers of all time, besides being one of the most amazing promo men with a mix of over-the-top high-energy promos and subdued, earnest, genuine promos. He is essential both to Starcade and my list. Yeah. Next up, Sting. Sure. Sting gives his all for the show every time he comes out. Not every match is a winner, but Sting does what he can with whatever he's given. Give him Ric Flair in a great story? Awesome. Yep. Give him Vader in a knockdown dragout match? Great. Give him the Black Scorpion? He'll roll with it. Yeah, he'll try. Betray him and screw up the finish for the most important match in WCW? He will still keep going. Mm-hmm. He's Sting. Many shows ride on his shoulders, and he's faced with multiple matches on several shows, but he never lets you down. And third, Tony Schiavone. There you go. Okay. The voice of WCW. Tony works on most of the Starcades, as I mentioned before, and provides a steady voice, playing the straight man for a rotating cast of commentators. He rarely stands out the most, but he's always there, describing the action and engaging the others in discussions. He's the one around whom the commentary revolves on most shows, the rock that can keep things going and bring things back in focus when they drift. He's a huge and important part of Starcade, and I think he needs to be honored here. Yeah, I can definitely see that. 
Next up, let's take a look at our matches of the series. Much like with the MVPs, I'm not going to make you pick a single match. Instead, we're going to do three in no particular order. What are your matches of the series? All right. From 96, I'm going to do Mysterio versus Liger. Okay. And also from that same year, Malenko versus Dragon. Oh, okay. <laughs> sure. Those were both awesome. Yeah. yeah. And one of my favorite, I, I can't say it's the favorite uh, match, but it's definitely a powerful one. That Sting versus Vader fight was amazing. The Starcade 92 King of Cable match final? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool. Yeah. I like that one a lot. 96 was a special year for me. Uh, like mm-hmm. there was a lot of great acrobatics and it was exciting for me and had probably one of the strongest openers ever. Yeah. No, no, I agree. That was awesome. Yeah. Sure. I will say there is a little overlap because I, as my third one I put in, the Sting Vader King of Cable final from 92. Okay. I have Steven Regal versus Ricky Steamboat. From Starcade 93. Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember you loving that one a lot. I rewatched it, it holds up just as well. That's good. It's the best match I can recommend that doesn't have a clean finish. Mm-hmm. That it has a has a stoppage of time, which is fine. Okay. And I have the Rock and Roll Express versus the Andersons in the cage match. All right. I rewatched that and again, it holds up amazingly well. Yep. It's the thing we said at the time. If you're look, trying to tell someone what, what old school tag team face in peril dastardly heels got to get their comeuppance matches are you would show them this one absolutely best sample of that yep match has it all yeah all right well we've got a little bit of overlap again (laughs) okay because the first one on my list starkey 1986 rock and roll express versus the andersons there you go and yeah i i agree and number one you knew arn was getting on one of my lists somewhere (laughs) oh yeah sure absolutely I'm sure there's a list that's just called Arn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Here's his matches. This was just such a perfect look at the 1980s style of tag team wrestling, a match between perhaps the best face and heel tag teams in wrestling at the time. In fact, two of the best ever. Nobody gets crowd sympathy like the Rock and Roll Express, and nobody brutalizes an opponent like the Andersons. This is tag wrestling, and tag wrestlers should be required to study this match to see how it's done. Absolutely. Next on my list... Starcade 1985, Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard. Yeah, yeah. The brawl to end all brawls. Brutal, intense, pushing both guys to their limit. A bit bloody. Yeah. It doesn't have a ton of openly creative spots, but that's because it doesn't need them. It goes for raw emotion, grabs you, and doesn't let go. The ending is absolutely epic, with the hero going so far to win that he struggles to pull himself back, and we fear that he might fall into anger and hate. But he pulls back and remains a hero. I, I rewatched this match for making this choice, and I actually did like get a little teary-eyed at the end of it again. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I was like, the moment that happened, I was like, well, it's on my list. No, I can absolutely see that. My last one is Starcade 1993, Flair vs. Vader. Fair enough. Flair enough, do you think? <laughs> it was very, very close between Sting versus Vader and Flair versus Vader. And before, when I asked myself which I liked more, I came down on the side of the Sting match, and that is still an epic, amazing, career-defining match. Mm-hmm. But so is this one. Sure. And it just feels like such an absolutely perfect Flair story, with the canny ring veteran searching his opponent for one weakness, finding a spot where he can create one, and taking advantage of it at the slightest opportunity. 
Flair beats Vader in a totally different way than how Sting beat Vader. Add the tremendous crowd reaction and interaction, and this one just edges slightly ahead this time. Just the the epicness of the complete storyline coming together with that one just pushes a little ahead. All right. Now the awards nobody wants. (laughs) First up... Least valuable performers. Mm-hmm. The people that, if we're being honest, you'd rather not have seen. I'll make this short and sweet and quick. Marinara, good squad. <laughs> <laughs> Nasty boys. And any assassin number. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not important enough to give a name, <laughs> you don't need it. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And the Nasty boys, it just the promos and everything just is like like the marinara voice is, is like it's grating it's bad mm-hmm. it's, it's bad i know one of owls by the way i'm do you do? fairly certain i'm okay, sure go ahead I'm and get, so give certain. us a guess give us a guess I, uh, jimmy <laughs> <laughs> it has to be you think so is he on there al he might be okay <laughs> okay well, this is no order hulk hogan mm-hmm. <laughs> In 1994, he had no chemistry with his longtime friend and bored us. In 1996, he mostly fought Piper in a slow, silly match. In 1997, he booked himself to dominate the Conquering Hero Sting. Yep. All I need to explain for that one. Second pick, Wahoo McDaniel. Aw. Aw. Nothing personal against him. <laughs> Either old school guy who wouldn't seem to go away. The booking at him was so confusing. On one show, he's a veteran in a tag match designed to minimize in-ring time, so he sort of utilizes his star power by putting someone else over and do the heavy lifting. On the very next show, however, he'll be a high-profile singles wrestler who's got to deliver a full match in the ring. And I'm like, yeah. do you guys not watch these shows? Clearly, one is better than the other. And yes, my third one is Jimmy Valiant. Okay. He's going to get out of town. <laughs> <laughs> and then hang around anyway in a mask. Yes. <laughs> Nothing against the guy personally, but he didn't have much offense or visible skill in the ring. In spite of that, he was given numerous high-profile matches and lots of time in the ring. His matches never got good. One was decent, although I'm being generous. Yeah. He had knees that would never quit. (laughs) (laughs) I I will admit, he was in consideration for mine, Mm -hmm. but the latter two matches with him were both okay. Mm -hmm. So I was like, uh, no, I think I did kind of come around to him a little bit by the end. See, for me, it was only the last match that was okay. So that's, yeah, that's part yeah, of why yeah, turned there you me. go. All right, for mine, first up, we've got Hulk Hogan. Hogan is not on here because he's a bad performer, although he had three appearances on Starcade and all of them were bad. Mm-hmm. I still think Hogan's a pretty good performer overall, particularly in terms of crowd interaction and general charisma. The other bad matches get him close, but what pushes him to the list is Starcade 1997. Sure. Where his backstage maneuvering was at least partially responsible for turning WCW's most epic storyline into WCW's most epic disappointment. Yeah. Next up, The Butcher. <laughs> I realize the guy only showed up once, but he was in the main event of Starcade and clearly had no business being in the main event of Starcade. Butcher has nothing. There is not a single element of a professional wrestling performance that he pulls off adequately. And the third one for me, agreeing with you, with you John, the Nasty Boys. Yes. Yeah. Congratulations, guys. You can share this one. These guys had a couple really, really, really long and boring tag matches. They successfully made me hate matches involving Sting, Hawk, and Booker T, which oh, should yeah. say something about how much I dislike their performances. 
Okay, moving on to worst matches of the series. The matches you really wish you had never seen, the ones that made you sit and think, well, that's a few minutes of my life I will never get back. My first one is Hogan vs. Butcher from Starcade 1994. <laughs> yeah. The biggest spots of the match are a back break and a sleeper hold. Yep. It is slow, so awkward, and feels three times longer than it is. I honestly remember this match being a good 20, 30 minutes, but it's actually 12. Yes. But Al, what about the epic butcher selling where he kind of like leans forward and just kind of stares at Hogan, making no discernible moves or facial expressions? That helped that helped the ranking yeah. this one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. My second worst one, no offense to half the people involved, that is Sting and Robert Hawk versus Nasty Boys. Yep. <laughs> which legitimately was almost 30 minutes. Yeah. And felt like 60. <laughs> Someone put the Nasty Boys in a match that goes nearly 30 minutes. Even with Sting, it is slow and painful. It is booked to have them dominate, but they are not capable of making it interesting. They just don't have the offense or character or anything to make that work. Yeah. Just slow holds and like sitting on a guy and it just takes forever. And then, obviously, as a bonus, the inning was bought due to an apparent injury and then a word of malfunction leading to one of the people being fired. How many matches include that in their aftermath? Yeah. In my third worst match of the series, the first Battle Bowl match. Oh, wow. Okay. How can a match be both boring and too hard to follow? <laughs> Good point. It should be one or the other. Yep. This two-ring battle royal, which involves throwing someone from one ring into another and then over the top rope to the outside, is full of random wrestlers in a cramped space. There are tiny moments in the middle that work, ending saves from being worse than the other matches above. Okay. It's not too late for me to change one of them. <laughs> nope, no, no, yeah, you can feel free. Yeah. No, Battle Bowl is very good. <laughs> what you feeling, John? 97, Hogan and Sting. Mm-hmm. Two people that I want to like... <laughs> But can't. <laughs> yep. I, I see that, yeah. I get like, you. If, if you could make Sting not be enjoyable, that's got an aura mm-hmm. <laughs> emanating from you. I'm not saying Sting himself wasn't. I'm just saying the match. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, very hard no, for no, me yeah. to be against a match. Valiant and Jones. <laughs> Which one? The one where he strips him naked or the other one? Let's go with that one. That's uh, 84. <laughs> they were both bad. Yeah, the first one where it's just him beating up Paul Jones and ripping his tuxedo off slowly. Yes. And yes, the more. tuxedo thing was kind of cool initially, and I think when we were talking about it, it was a little bit. It was a little bit nicer, but at the end of the day, it wasn't a good time. Yeah, sure. And uh, ninety-nine, Bret Hart and Goldberg. Oh, really? Okay. Just the referee bumps. Yeah, I, yeah, and and that was that was enough. Normally, that doesn't bother me, but I'm trying to look at it as Starcade. What do you need to avoid? Mm-hmm. You know, I want to give you a warning on that one, for sure. Yeah, and, and and that one I remember, too, you were really upset. You described it as one of the rare times that you disliked Roddy Piper as well, because of how he yeah. comes out at the end. Yeah. I can see that now. Yeah, now thinking back on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it, it makes absolutely no sense. I, again, the, the theme here is there's people I want to like, and then you just basically trash that for me. Okay. Moving forward. Not that I think Roddy Piper is trash, but you know, like I just didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't get it. It was, I get that. Yeah, absolutely. He has, they live at something else. <laughs> yep. 
classic movie. And my fourth worst match Uh-oh. needs to be a descending order of bear hug timers. Which <laughs> 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 we, I don't think that's the stat that you uh, went through. I don't think you should compile that. I did not do lo- largest longest bear hugs in matches. Sorry. <laughs> I will say uh, dishonorable mentions for the. What one minute long match between the skyscrapers yes. versus Big Cat and where the hell guy's name was? I don't remember. Uh, Motor City Batman. Thank you. And also the elimination tag match between yes. the Zambu Express, Sasha number one, and Buzz Tyler. Yes. Which is not my worst because it's only six minutes, four minutes of action. Mm-hmm. Action in giant air coaches, to be clear. Whereas Butcher, again, felt like 30 minutes, and the one yeah. other watch actually was 30 minutes, and Battle Bowl was at least 20 minutes as well. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think you're getting at something that, that, that I used as a judgment call as well here. Yeah, I started with a list of 14 bad matches here, which, as we may note, is as many matches as our biggest pay-per-view card. That's true, yeah. You could have filled Darky 1990, was it? 1990, yes. Yes, you could yeah. fill Darky 1990 with the worst matches. <laughs> yes. So I had to narrow it down somehow, and honestly, I just ended up going with length for the most part. There's a lot of terrible matches that at least have the grace to be short. Many on my list were about five minutes tops. These are three that did not show that mercy. Hogan versus Butcher, Starcade 1994. 100%. Yeah, I remember saying at the time that this was just as bad as a number of awful matches we'd seen over a bunch of prior Starcades, but multiple times as long. An awful match poorly performed with DQ rules ignored and a strange ending besides. Yeah, yeah. Starcade 1989, the Samoans versus the Steiners. Yeah. This one gets in there for the offensiveness angle. With offensive commentary and mockery of the Samoans, combined with a massive amount of stalling. Oh, yeah. The actual action is okay, but it takes forever to get going. And then when Rick gets back in, it just stalls again. Also, bear hugs. Bear hugs. Bear hugs. (laughs) All that and a terrible top rope throw DQ ending. Oh, yeah. And finally, it pains me to say this one, but yeah. Starcade 1993, Sting and Hawk versus the Nasty Boys. So much stalling. The scoreboards so explode. Many botches. So much rules confusion. I forgot the botches. Such <laughs> a screwed up finish. Uh, I was going to give this some grace because Sags clearly gets hurt. By the way, I think I finally identified where it happens. It looks like he pulls his back trying the pump handle slam. Oh. He's clearly moving fine before that and clearly moving badly after that. Oh, okay. So I'm pretty sure that's where it happens. I'd say rewatch to check, but I want to watch yeah. the match again, so I won't. <laughs> but yeah, I was going to give it grace because of that, but it's just so, so long, boring, botchy, and bad leading up to that point that it doesn't even earn a pass through sympathy. No. But at least this gave us the Scorpio Hawks. Yes. Gift that keeps giving. Yes. It'll be a shirt one day. Until it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) But for the series overall, we've actually got some other awards to hand out here. So first up, I'd like to go for the best commentary team. Which commentary team did you enjoy the most? Uh, It's got to be Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone. All right. 1994 Starcade. With Bobby Heenan gets my VP for making that show tolerable by his presence. The duo works so well together, they can build up matches that are just dumb, and they can make matches <laughs> that are interesting, at least sound interesting, mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Yeah. My only announcer MVP, so I have to pick that one. Yep. Okay. I had to waver between Tony Schiavone 
Bobby the Brain Heenan, and Dusty Rhodes. And that trio exists both in 95 and 96. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then there's a couple other guest ones in 96. I can't remember off the top of my head. Lee Marshall and Mike Tanay. Yeah, and they're only there for a couple of the matches. The core is them, though. I've teetered between the two, but the going butt over tea kettle has told me that I should go with 95, even though 95 has plenty of offensive content. Mm -hmm. True. If I can rule that out. No, yeah. But then reason I still think that the commentary, just even just that one phrase, <laughs> yeah, 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 can, can only edge it out. But it's such a tight split. In fact, if they had maybe toned down some of the uh, subject matter, ninety-five would cinch it, hundred mm-hmm. percent. I love Dusty. <laughs> yes, <laughs> as a wrestler oh, yeah. and a commentator, he's the other voice of Stark. <laughs> oh no, absolutely, yeah, yeah, sure. I, I knew going into that that you were going to love Dusty as a commentator, definitely. You don't know what he's going to say. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's going to say. Yes. <laughs> yep. John, I'm, I'm agreeing with you totally. Yeah. Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, and Dusty Rhodes. Uh, Stark is 95 and 96. I, I think 95 does edge out 96 performance in the general smoothness of it, despite, again, some humor that I wouldn't have preferred. Because they're they're kind of distracted by the NWO stuff. At yeah, yeah. There's a little bit of distraction in 96 and the other commentators coming in make it a little less smooth. But yeah, no surprise here, honestly. I was pretty open about this team being my favorite in WCW. So <laughs> fair shot at any time they show up across all the series we do, they will probably end up getting this award. But mm-hmm. we'll see. They just feel like a good group of pals just sitting down to watch the show together. They have really good chemistry, and they play off each other really well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, some questionable comments aside from time to time, I had a lot of fun with their appearances. I will say I leaned slightly more toward 94, because as good as, as funny as Dusty is, he can sometimes get distracted from the match, which is just, it's interesting in its own right. Yeah, for me, that's actually kind of a right, plus. Right. <laughs> But if you're looking at it, trying to be objective on it, oh yeah, as a straight actual show commentary, it's more straightforward and flows better on any four because there's not the third person there. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, but I I, I please enjoy Dusty as well. Yeah, yeah, you don't know have to worry about two other people chiming in like 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 right now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I will say just as an honor mm-hmm. mention, I guess the bits they do where it's Jim Ross and uh, Jim Cornette when they're doing the tag parts of that first tournament. Mm-hmm. It's actually really good. They worked they, it really well. They do some excellent, excellent commentary. Yeah, I wish and I just left them there the whole time. Instead of as much as I like Funk, it just it distracts them. They pull people in and out. The other one, it wasn't really in the running, but the one notable for me was Jesse Ventura. I keep on thinking of like, is Arnold going to show up? Is this going to be <laughs> there? A you go. Yeah, Predator. The only commentary who doesn't have time to bleed. <laughs> yes. All right. Next up, let's take a look at best promos. I'll start us off. First up, I have Ric Flair from Starcade 1993, his post-match locker room promo. That's a good one. Yeah. This is an interesting one for me, and I wasn't sure at first I was going to put it on, and Starcade 83 was kind of similar, but this I felt like was the, the more evolved form of that, I guess. Yeah. This is the genuine Ric Flair. Honestly thankful to the fans, happy to be back, and taking the time to ensure that he builds up his opponent rather than crowing about his victory. It's not a real character promo. It's the man himself. It's unpolished, but it's because of that that it stands out and becomes so wonderful and memorable. This is a man reflecting honestly on the blessings that he's received. Next up, Ric Flair, 
Starcade 1988 post-match. So in contrast, this is full-on ranting lunatic character Ric Flair, and <laughs> yeah. it is awesome. This was when he beat Lex Luger and was oh, telling, yeah, him, yeah. telling him, uh, you'll, you know, you'd never have another match against me again. I'm going to have all of my lawyers and all the money against you, and yeah, all of that. This was the first time I felt like we actually got to see the true Flair character promo, the absolute maniacal villain Flair. The promo is slightly mucked up by the bunkhouse stampede announcement, but Flair... <laughs> But Flair is still brilliant. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And third, we have Dusty Rhodes in the build-up to Starcade 85, the Hard Times promo. In that you're cheating. I'm, I'm slightly cheating here, I will admit, but <laughs> it's one of the most legendary promos of all time. I know it wasn't actually on a Starcade, but I did play it on an episode. So I say that I can pick it. This is Dusty Rhodes at his best, showing his incredible connection with the fans, engaging them emotionally, and creating one of the most famous and incredible moments in wrestling history. But I recognize that that may be a little bit of a cheat. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give you guys a fourth choice that is actually on a Starcade, and that surprises the hell out of me that I'm going to say it. Sid Vicious and Dan Spivey. <laughs> Starcade 1990 after their match after their horrible horrible match yeah. that nearly ended up on my on my worst matches list that promo where they lift Paul Heyman in the air and just shout at him <laughs> is hilarious <laughs> and had me in stitches i don't know that i necessarily actually call it a good promo but for entertainment value it's great and finally honorable mention sting starcade 1989 Whatever he was going to say before the show suddenly went off the air, I'm sure what, sure it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, promo choices from you guys. Oh, 90, Dark Age 95, where it sting before his match. Mm -hmm. When he starts to turn a little bit, again, annoyed, people keep asking about right, Luger. yeah, yeah. Sarcastic, sarcastic sting, yes. sarcastic sting, yeah. He was, that was really good. It's, it's nice to have a little nuance to him, and like, mm -hmm. genuine... Generally, generally sounding, I would say, is probably yes. the word. Because he's not this plain white baby face that feels no emotion. He's a guy who's just tired of being asked this question. Mm -hmm. He feels like he's he's being challenged by people asking this all the time. Yeah, yeah. Oh, another good one is Circuit 87, the Jimmy Garvin and no one else promo. From back <laughs> yes. Jimmy Garvin speaks <laughs> nonstop for like three minutes straight. <laughs> Changes subject a couple times. Ask himself questions and answer the questions. Yes. The uh, Micro Machines promo, I believe we yes. might have preferred to it as, yeah. All the while, Michael Hayes is waiting to talk and does not get to talk. <laughs> Looking more and more miffed in the background, yes. the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, that was great. Sting wisely stays in the back, not even in the shot. He yes. knows he's got no chance. Yeah. Dark Age 87, you also have the mostly unintelligible, but very happy Nikita Koloff. Yeah. I think just unified his two belts. It makes my heart feel good. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Goes full cookie monster. It's amazing. Yes. Your best definition ever, John. Yes. I think you're stealing John's choices here oh, I'm from sorry. the gestures he's giving us. You, you both are, but that's fine. Oh, good. <laughs> Even my honorable mention. That's fine. You can, you can restate them. We can agree. It's fine. Well, I've sort of like spoiled it, but and so have you. Um, <laughs> my number one was... Uh, the best in the world, Nikita Koloff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and that's 1987, the Cookie Monster Koloff. I enjoyed that quite a bit. 
Yeah. And I did watch that a few times, more than many of those matches. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I rewatched that after watching his match, and I was like, oh yeah, this is a great promo, this yeah. is ridiculous. The first one that I wrote down was Hard Times, for sure. Yeah. But I couldn't include it because I wasn't going to spend that one token to get the, the non-choice. <laughs> so that's my, that's my honorable mention. That speech changed my outlook for who I chose as MVP. Yes, it did. Yes, it yes, it did. Yeah. It was transformative. It's probably one of the better promos in all of wrestling, not necessarily mm-hmm. just Starcade or... Yeah, it is legendary. Yeah. Yeah. October 29th, 1985. Okay. I even wrote that down. The 93 Flair promo made me feel like Flair was a human. (laughs) He Mm -hmm. talks about his plane crash. He talks about what he drew upon and all the resilience and everything that he had to do to be the great champ that he was. You know, there is a little bit of lifting himself up, but he talks about, and rightly so, about filling arenas and Mm -hmm. how he had to control his anger and performance. So that was really humanizing, even though he's not just a character, and that made me appreciate him more. Mm Mm-hmm. I did spend the coin of going outside the box (laughs) for my actual third, which is the video promo for 1997, the unmade Highlander Sting Hogan thing, where it says, (laughs) he watches from the shadows. Yes. Yeah. He watched the fall of an empire. And I just hear it in in Sting's voice, and that's good enough. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. 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 That was really, really well produced. Yeah. That may not be the best video presentation that WCW ever did, but it's it's really good. Mm-hmm. It like sets the mood immediately. The point where they have the jagged glass and they have Hogan just like ripping his shirt and yes. everything. Yeah. You know, it, it definitely had the most production value out of more than actually probably most of the video packages. And that's why I want to think of it as a promo. No, I get you. It served the same purpose for me. Especially from a character that wasn't supposed to talk. So Yeah. I read his words. We went there. There you go. Now, is that better than the kid reading poetry for his entrance for you? No. I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to mention to angry Vader promo after Starcade 94. Yeah, the 94 one where he yeah, yeah, yeah. comes in screaming and unintelligibly at Hogan. Yeah. That ends Starcade better than the match because the match is mm-hmm. terrible. You're like, okay, yeah, we'd had this terrible Butcher-Hogan match that lasted for six years. But now we have Vader to look forward to. Mm-hmm. I, I also like his uh, 93 bit afterwards where he's just yeah. hurling lockers and chairs around and screaming, I want it back! I want it back! And I'm like, oh my gosh, there went your deposit on the building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the only that. other speech that sounded good that was even close, it's not physical, but when he's talking about he's not going to be a stepping stone, I, I can't recall. Oh, right, yeah, the 2001 with... Um, that was good. With, with General... with. Hugh, yeah, Hugh that Morris. guy. We'll just call him Hugh Morris. Yes, blue, Hugh pill, Morris. blue pills. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not all matches are the usual sort of singles or tag match. So, what was your favorite gimmick match on the series? I'm not mentioning one because it's on the card. But the second one that I, is the uh, six-man ladder match. 2000 opening match. Young Dragon. The, yeah. the ladder scaffolds and everything. I like that it allows not only cool, constructive, and and physics lessons. Ladder matches, to me, uh, especially that kind, allows you to showcase a large degree of talent, teamwork, Mm -hmm. and having people run in, having their backs hit up against the ladder seems to 
make me cringe more than any other, you know, chair slam or any of that other stuff, yeah. you know, like spikes uh-huh. and stuff aside, but any of the other moves, it just seems to amplify it. And there's just, it's so adaptable, especially when they use the turnbuckles and everything. You just can't use that with just a hidden weapon. You know, it's one of those things, you know what's going to happen, you expect it to happen, and it either happens really the way you see it, or they do a nice twist. Okay. So I like those. Not the whole holding the hands up and stuff crap, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, everything else about it, it's great. Yeah, and I see that. I could go a similar approach with the ladder match, but probably lean more towards the Benoit Jarrett one. Okay. It's more visibly a sort of test of wills between the two people, mm-hmm. uh, whereas six-man one is people coming in and out. So you can be bigger with it and just change people out, whereas you got to really pace things and think yeah. about all this stuff. Where's one falls? Can they get back in to stop the guy? Do you have to do in a singles ladder match like that? Yeah, and, and that was exceptional. Everything it did seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. They did, yeah. And for mine, which I'm going to take a bet that this is probably the one that you didn't mention because it's on your card, John. Dog collar match, Piper versus Valentine, Stark 883. Yeah. Yeah. Special uh, collar no match, doubt. yes. The, no the doubt. dog collar slash special collar match, yes. That's pretty much my favorite match. <laughs> like, ever. This was equal parts insanely brutal and creative and just absolutely stunning to watch. I enjoy it not just for the intensity, but also for how well they use the gimmick. They really involved the chain, not just for tug-of-wars or whipping, but with loads of interesting concepts right up to the end of the match. It just doesn't seem to ever run dry of ideas for how to use it, which... And I've seen a lot of, like, chain or strap matches, Mm -hmm. and I generally don't like them. So this one just really blew me away. Anyone have a worst type of gimmick match? Four-corner strap match. (laughs) Four corner strap match. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Yeah, especially the 1986 one, the first one, because it was so dragged out. Literally, the Wahoo and Rude one is that? Oh yeah, yeah. It was no. Yes, it was, it was. It was horrible. Yeah, that was that was really bad. Particularly horrible. Yeah. When the only thing I can praise about the match is the bizarre intro music for Rick Rude. <laughs> yes, that says something about the match. <laughs> that that great thing. Yeah. I mean, I would probably lean towards tuxedo matches. Or the general just, you beat up the manager matches. Yeah. Whether like, you had the Oklahoma as well on 99 Star Arcade. Because okay. it's not meant to be a competition. It's meant to be, they get to come up on this guy. But they always seem to drag them past the point where it feels satisfactory. It feels more like it's a trained professional fighter just beating up some guy yeah. at the ring. Particularly Jones' first one. A guy just beating up this defenseless dude that he's tied to the ropes. It's yes. It's horrific. Yeah. For mine, um, sorry, John, scaffold match. It's okay. No, I, I get it. Yeah. I didn't think of that. But yeah. We had two of them, and I thought they were equal parts boring and terrifying to watch. I really, really struggle to picture any chance that there could be a scaffold match out there I would ever actually enjoy. I, I just hate those. I totally hate those. <laughs> I got, that's going to be my goal. I got to find one of those for you. That's actually good. Yeah. It may not exist. Is it the fear of them falling or the boredom? It's both. It's both. I mean, it's just like, I'm sitting there bored out of my mind, and I'm scared to death that, you know, something's going to go horribly wrong. There's a real risk. Yeah, like, I can't enjoy... Like Cornette. I I don't feel like the risk is worth it, because the match is not interesting. It needs to be on fire, is what they need. Like, like with a ladder match, I know there's a ton of risk involved in it, but they're doing cool, creative things, so I'm like, okay, this is risky, but you're also... I feel like they're in control. It's so insulting to say it this way, but it feels like with a ladder match, you're putting yourselves on the line for, for art. Yeah. 
Isn't that beautiful? And I just, I feel so bad saying this, honestly, but I just, I don't feel like I can say that for a scaffold batch. I will say the one thing that it does that's really bad is the people that paid all the money to get the good seats get the worst view. That's that's very true. Yeah, you're kind of staring straight Check up the whole at show, the show. Yeah, they, like the people in the nosebleeds are just looking straight at the thing. Like, awesome, they've, they've got a great <laughs> shot. Yeah, yeah. I just I can't make myself like those. Was the second one the one I came up with the wrecking ball match where you have to grab a chain and go through some barrier <laughs> to, to win? I can't remember. I know you came up with that. I can't remember if that was for the first one or second one. It was a Battletoads reference. No, yeah. yeah. The powerbomb match thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was almost um, that was almost mine, too. <laughs> the condition was never actually met for the whole match. Yes, yes. It only happened once, thankfully, but come on. If that had been a longer match, that would have been on my worst matches of the of the series, and if it weren't for scaffold matches, that would probably be my, my worst gimmick match, too. Fair enough. All right, here's a fun one. The best performer with a single Starcade appearance. Shinjiro Utani. Yep. <laughs> that match with Guerrero was awesome. Had one of my favorite pins, the the multiple roll-ups mm-hmm. at the very end. Wasn't that... Just, that was so intense, yeah. I mean, there was some overselling, but, you know, that's okay. But mm-hmm. he highlighted Guerrero's abilities, and he had great athleticism, and he didn't look like he had the physique to do the things he was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had amazing reach, and I, I wanted to see what else he could do, not just in arm length, <laughs> leg length, but he he was able to pull off multiple styles and, you know, holds and acrobatics. So I really wanted to see more out of that wrestler. Okay. Mine actually, it came across, we were watching because I figured, okay, I have to go back to the older shows because it's been probably a year since I've watched some of these matches yeah. for the show. on that. So I don't want to fully forget about stuff from like 83, 84, 85, etc. So I really focused on trying to go back to those because they were less fresh on memory. So actually, despite having a couple of web PPs that were one-off people like Regal and Awesome, I actually went back to my very first uh, match tonight, which was Jack and Jerry Briscoe. Okay. Yeah, they were they were neat. They were neat, especially the rope balance. Yeah. In one performance, they represent old-school wrestling, dirty heels, technical prowess, simple but effective characters, and are willing to go out losing. Yep. Yeah, no, they, they, were, they were excellent, yeah. They have historical importance because they end up selling their share of George Championship Wrestling to Vince McMahon, so they are important in the long run as well. I'm going to agree with John. Shinjiro Otani was, was my selection. Oh, really? The dude could go. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely great in the ring, whether we're talking holds, throws, mat work, or his incredibly graceful springboards. Mm -hmm. Still the most assured and flowing that I have ever seen there. I really, really hope that he shows up on another show sometime, because I want to see more of that guy. Honorable mention to Magnum TA, who I I adored his only match. He does show up on other Starcades in a promo and uh, interviews capacity. So I, I considered him still applicable to this, but technically he shows up more than once, so I decided to go with Utani for my actual choice. I'm surprised. Uh, I wouldn't even have picked Utani if I hadn't had to iron out whether I liked 95 or 96 for commentary. <laughs> so I watched both to 95 just to see how I felt about it, and I was just impressed by the guy. It's, he's amazing. Really made to think he's still wrestling in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Most improved. Is there anyone you thought wasn't too great when they first showed up or just had a lot of work to do but later on they really improved and turned things around (laughs) john you're laughing give us your choice it may be controversial all right rick flair i thought so i did not like rick flair but as he developed 
I don't know if I still like Ric Flair, but, but I think that <laughs> he honed his craft. He definitely is not the character that I typically uh, root for, but you cannot deny his abilities. Mm-hmm. He's Mr. Starcade. And you absolutely see him develop his character over the first few shows, where I remember us saying on that first one, he's just kind of generic babyface, fairly good at it, but generic babyface, not really drawing out a lot. Then 84, you've got this like midpoint between I'm the honorable champion, but I'm totally willing to take a win that way. Yeah, yeah. And then 85, it's finally like, oh, this is Ric Flair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he develops things, little minutiae as, as the years go on. And then like, you know, he loses some stuff, but that's okay. But he gets mm-hmm. it all back. He's one of the most fleshed out characters. I think that there is just a bit of honesty to it for a dishonest character. <laughs> yeah. Weirdly, the one way he doesn't improve is that he wins his first match with the crossbody off top rope. And spends the rest of his career paying back the karma for it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> it's amazing. All right, Al? I'm probably going to steal yours, but it's a pretty big jump from a couple of years apart, which is DDP. Yep, I'm, I'm in agreement on that, yeah. Because, he, yeah, he's a good character in 92, or 91, 91, 91, yeah. 91 actually, excuse me. He is a decent wrestler at that point, but he's definitely not the DDP you know him has. And then he comes back later, you see the real workhorse version of that character, the fight from beneath kind of guy, the fight to the pain. And that he just, well, I will say, I know I liked him and they gave him his first show. Eddie Guerrero's transformation from face to heel is pretty impressive as well. Right, yes, yeah. He's going to be P.I. 97 just based on his character work, not even for the actual match Yep, for me. so Yep, I'm, I'm in agreement with you, Al, on uh, Diamond Dallas Page. He's good character-wise when he shows up on Starcade 91, like you said, but he doesn't have a lot in the ring. But by the time he shows up again on Starcade 96, he has become one of the best storytellers in WCW, capable of putting on a well-crafted and highly detailed match with basically anyone who goes, he goes up against, including David Flair. Yeah. So that's an amazing transformation, and it's clear the dedication and hard work he had to put in to get to that point. So yeah, he he gets my award for that. I will go. I mention going from sort of okay in a tag to being strong enough singles is Nikita Koloff. Yes, as yeah, well. yeah, absolutely. We we commented a lot on watching his improvement in the early years as well. Yeah, the Nick Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Not picking best ref bump. So he does have that. And finally, the best and worst Starcades. So I'll let you each go ahead and do your full list, I think. Okay. Let's uh, let's start with your three worst and do your three best following. Worst Starcades. Starcade 1991. Battle Bowl. Mm-hmm. It's the Battle Bowl show. <laughs> Nothing else. 92 is half Battle Bowl and has its own issues, but... It has enough really strong stuff that carries it way above 91. Yeah. 1994, Starcade. Hogan Cade at its worst. Yeah. The show is designed to put all his buddies on the show, make them look strong, and, well, make him look stronger than everyone else. It even drags on people like Sadang to meh matches. Mm-hmm. The last one was tricky because there's a bunch of ones for different reasons, but I went with Starcade 1997. Okay. The Great Disappointment. All right. The show is known for having so many matches changed last minute, outright canceled, or ruined in some way. It's a case of, too bad, you already paid us. <laughs> yes. Top of that, behind the scenes, people ruined the main event, and each put the storyline, and it just hurt everything. 
disrespectful mentions for Dark Knight in 84 for being so-so throughout the show and then just annoying us so much with the controversial ending. <laughs> yes. Darkade is 86, which goes on for... That's energy. the extra hour show, yeah. The extra hour show. And also the first scaffold match one as well. So is that the double? And yeah. narrowly beating out 90... Losing out, rather, to 97 Starcade is 1999 The random OCD Starcade. Yes. All right, and your three best. Okay, so that was a little trickier. Cause it's, it's, it is, it is, yeah. Because I got to really pick... All the match on the show, then narrow down best and worst and see which sort of outweighs the other. A little tricky time with this one. Um, I think I end up going with Circuit 1988. That feels like a very solid show throughout. Mm-hmm. Has a good main event and delivers throughout. It's past the point where the early shows are kind of random. So here's a random guy from this territory you've never met and never see ever again. Mm-hmm. It feels because it's the JCP show at this point, it's more uniform as being their kind of show. Okay. Uh, okay. So I've got to pick a tournament show because there's so, so many of those to fill them out. The one that has the most interesting matches without going overly long. And more importantly, I think is most accessible is probably 1995 Starcade. Mm-hmm. Because even though it was my favorite show overall, you could show someone that show as a wrestling tournament event show. I think they would enjoy it. They would yeah. get all the subtext and everything. And that was not to say I love every match because I don't like the triangle match. It just takes forever. But there's enough on there, I think, makes it pull ahead. And third one was a little tricky with. And it actually really broke down the number of matches. Good again, good versus bad. I have to basically ignore the main events follow up and pick everything else as a show. So I start in 1998, weirdly enough. Okay. Oh, interesting. The Peaks and Valleys show. Yes. Because <laughs> the two strong openers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. Yep. Two matches that surprise you delivering so well. Mm-hmm. Norman Smiley and the KO one. There obviously are some down points in some where they're not, it's not as good as it could be. But honestly, if I ignore those matches, most of them are really pretty good. And even the Kevin Nash Goldberg match up until the chicanery to use a fancy word for it they use mm-hmm. is actually a decent match better than i actually expected going into that match oh yeah the match itself so i'm like yeah it's like a surprise all right john uh why don't we do your three worst than three best all right i'm gonna go with the worst 97 okay which i have the word why with about 50 whys it has lots of potential, but falls short of greatness. Uh, <laughs> cascading series of events that just do not speak for the investments they put into Sting's arc mm-hmm. at yeah. all. And and what's really bad is I'm like mad at myself listening to that. I'm like, John, you you should have been more appalled other than just saying this is what they do. <laughs> <laughs> I did not like ninety for like the whole nationalist. No one gets along. <laughs> There's so many tags. So many tag teams. There's, out of 14 events, there's, I think, 12 of them are tag or something like that. A, a good dang portion of them are. Yeah, I yeah. don't remember exactly how many, but yeah, because there's tag matches outside of just the tournament. Yes. Yeah. I want to say there's at least eight. Yeah, there's a huge number of tag matches on that show. And and none of them were really like stand out in the grand scheme that makes me say, oh, I really like the canadians versus whatever I, like i can't even recall uh, i've just kind of pushed that one aside but i do remember mm-hmm. at the time it was very hard to watch 
94. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 94, 94, 94. A Hogan. It was almost as big of a disappointment as 97. Wow. It's not Thunder in Paradise anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I get you. You don't have any of the feel-good things that you might have from him being in that other wrestling show or that other wrestling thing. Yeah. It's more Secret Agent Club than Thunder in Paradise. <laughs> yes. The only thing that was close to those was 91, 92, Toilet Bowl. <laughs> it's really confusing matches like it wasn't as drawn out as 90 mm-hmm. in any way but the battle bowl was just so long well, yes it's funny because if you look at 89 they alternated the tag in singles matches yes and then in 90 they just throw four tag matches oh yeah it's like oh my gosh come on assembly line here yep yeah we need a break from this tag match to bring you a tag match yes <laughs> all right your best ones okay 96. Some people don't... I can see why you might not want me to choose that one, but I thought there was a lot of great performances and had a really great opener. Two of my favorite matches were Mysterio and Liger and Malenko and Dragon. Mm-hmm. Two of those happened, and they kind of tilted the scale for the my sure. perception of the entire uh, Starcade, even if it wasn't really fully deserving. But if I wanted to show something, get someone interested, I was like, just at least watch the first half of this. If you like this, then... Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should see some other ones. 95. 95 is the one I rewatched and has a great commentary team, had big mm-hmm. names, Flair, Savage, had all kinds of great new names in it. Again, you have a little nationalist thing, but I think it was more of a pairing. You know, like they, they did manager aside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they did that for show and everything. But mm-hmm. managers aside, I think that it was somewhat respectful and some of their stuff. Like I, I think that they showcased their talent. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. On both sides. And that was big for me. And I'm going to have to agree with Al. 88, it's a solid Starcade. It's short. It's not frilly <laughs> or anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a watch where it's it's an easy watch and you can feel good about it. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's just kind of runs smoothly, yeah. Yeah. You have two big names at the end. You have some interesting tag teams, but, you know, you do have the Assassins and Koloff. You have that whole that whole Russian angle. Yeah, that that one should have been a lot better. And if Nikita could have stayed around for that Oh, one, yeah, yeah. If Nikita was there, that that'd be better, yeah. yeah. And it has the one match that is sort of like... It has Sting, it has Rhodes, it has Road mm-hmm. Wars. It's the Rhodes versus Rhodes. It's just... <laughs> yeah. uh, I had to root for everyone on that. Absolutely. All right. So for my picks, so my three worst. Number one, we've got Starcade 1991 Battle Bowl. Yeah. A complete show of meaningless, often boring tag matches leading up to a meaningless, mostly boring and confusing battle royale with bizarre rules. There's decent things to be found on this show occasionally, but it's a massive slog. It could have been an interesting experiment, but it just ends up dull and overcomplicated. Next up, Starcade 1994. <laughs> this was awful. Yes. A few matches are okay, but several are very, very bad. And when all three of us pick a match between two total rookies as our match of the night, you know things are in a slump. The main event, the focal point of the show, is on my worst matches list. So that's a major knock against it, too. Yes. When you add in all those award ceremony bits that slow everything down so much, this becomes pretty much impossible to watch. And for my third one, Starcade 1999. Yeah. 
knew that would come in. An absolute mess of a show. Disorganized and hyperactive, and it never lets anything properly develop, which is at least a slight blessing in disguise because almost everything on it is insane, stupid, or both. Even WCW's best can barely manage to do anything with what they're given for most of the show. Idiotic, impossible to follow, and filled with botches. A truly horrible watch. It says something that one of the people is kidnapped, presumably to be murdered, and has completely glossed over super quickly. Yeah. That's for the audience at home. Yeah. (laughs) And my three best? I think we've all said this one, actually. Starcade 1988. Yeah. That was on both of you guys, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yep. It was far from a smooth show in terms of presentation, having seriously backslid in quality there, despite being the first show run by an actual television company. But as far as the actual matches went, it was terrific. Yeah, yeah. It starts hot and only has a single true misstep in the JYD Koloff versus the Russian Assassins match. And really, that wasn't that bad. No. It has one of Luger's best matches. It features the rise of Sting. And it has some really, really fun Rick Steiner moments that made it a really enjoyable show. (laughs) That one was just pure fun for most of the show, which is an easy recommendation for people. Absolutely. Second up, Starcade 1992, the second Battle Bull show. There's a strange misstep in the middle with Muta versus Chono, but aside from that, I had a lot of fun watching this show. All the more amazing considering it uses the Battle Bull concept that 1991 used. It just does it better, using a streamlined approach that doesn't take up the whole show, and results in a Battle Royale that's far easier to follow and has more clear storylines in it. Most matches are at least good, but add in an absolutely amazing King of Cable match between Sting and Vader and a great Tag Team Championship match, and you've got a tremendously fun show. And last for me, Starcade 1995. This was such a strange experiment, but it turned out to be a good one. We got to see a bunch of New Japan performers we didn't normally get to see. The Best of Seven story was a fun one and used very well, and the Triangle Match World Title Match storyline interwoven with the Luger Sting and Best of Seven stories fits in quite well. Not every match is a home run, but there were several real winners and no absolute duds. That's true. I can't remember which of you guys said this, but yeah, it would be super easy to use to just like intro someone to wrestling. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. This is a show you don't have to know what was going on going into this. Yeah. It's simultaneously one of the weirdest Starcades because of that, and one of the best Starcades because of that, I think. It doesn't get bogged down in anything, really. Going back to the very beginning discussion about the type of Starcades there are. For me, mine is a little more simplified. Mine is a super card show, Mm -hmm. which 88 technically still is. It's the tail end of that. There is the experimental slash tournament show, which 95 is part of. And then there's the modern wrestling show, or modern of its time, obviously, 90s, which 98 was. That's why I I broke down my picks. I get you. There you go. So if you need to watch Starcade, and and you do need to watch Starcade... Watch 88 and 95. (laughs) We all voted for those. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yep. And go for it. So we've given our awards and our analysis, but there's one more thing that we'd like to do here to just have some fun with this. Our ultimate Starcade cards. So here's the rules for this. Each of us designs a Starcade card featuring eight matches drawn from the actual Starcade matches. We can only use each performer as a competitor once. 
So someone can show up as a manager or commentator or interference or some other role on other matches, but you can only use them once as an actual competitor. For instance, if you picked Flair versus Race from Starcade 1983, you couldn't use either as a competitor in other matches, but you could still use matches where Harley Race was a manager. You can use any match in any position. You're not required to pick an actual main event for your main event. All right. So my Super Starcade. Probably some overlap with all of you guys, but that's fine. I have Ribbis Dury versus Juice Thunder Liger. I forget the strong opener. Okay. Followed by Ricky Steamboat versus Steven Regal for the television title yep. from 93. DP versus Kurt Hennig for the US title from 97. Yeah, that one was really int- really good, wasn't it? Yeah. I realized I didn't have DDP anywhere. I'm like, I need have DDP somewhere on here, and then mm-hmm. that was the best one to pick for me. Okay. Eddie Guerrero versus Kidman for the Cruiserweight title. Mm-hmm. I like that on the show, theoretical show, obviously, with Mysterio and Liger, because it's a Cruiserweight match, but it's got its own other elements to it, because it's people outside, and it's the impromptu nature of it. I feel like it has its own sort of feel to it. Mm-hmm. The Rock and Roll Express versus the Anderson for the tag titles. Yeah. In a cage. Followed by Vader versus Sting in the Kingo Cable Tournament final. Then I have Jeff Jarrett versus Chris Benoit in the ladder match. Okay. Yeah. And my main event, I put mine as the world title because it'd be official. Lex Luger versus Ric Flair from okay. 1988 Starcade. All right. Yep. All right. John, you want to go next? This had such a great opening for me, and I want to put it in the first on my supercard. Number one is 1996's Malenko versus Ultimo Dragon. Yep. Sure. And then I really wanted to switch it up into something more classical and technical and wonderful. And I didn't mention it before because I was saving it for this. 1986 Rock and Roll Express versus the Anderson's Cage Match. It's textbook and wonderful and dripping with technique. Mm-hmm. The third one, I, I'm i trying to get a lot of the big names on this card, so I went with Guerrero versus Mysterio versus Kidman from 1998. It was a great match. A lot of weird interactions between me. Didn't know who was going to fight who. Number four, Magnum TA versus Blanchard. Yep. It was pretty raw, very different than the other ones. I wanted to do something quick and light and, and aerial and then grunge and then just yep. alternate that. In light of that, I want to go back to the high-flying acts of uh, Luger and Muda, uh, 1989. Oh, the, uh, the the kicking match that you ah, and I both loved. Yeah, yeah it was a great... Yes. It was a fun match. It also gets Luger on my card. Mm-hmm. He had a lot of great matches, and I wanted to get Muda in there, too. So that was a fun match for me. Yep. And then, could easily be my main event, but I really think it belongs somewhere else on the card. Piper versus Valentine, dog collar match. <laughs> okay probably my favorite match out of all i would not say that to someone and say you need to watch this because it's not clearly for everyone but as far as creativity using the prop there isn't any other gimmick match that works yeah yeah period you're gonna have the tvma starcade with the magnum match yes, and, yeah, yes. and the color match yep yep <laughs> right not for kids number seven i love everyone on this Sting, Rhodes, Road Warriors. Yep. Great match. Yeah. Probably not the best match, but as far as participants goes, I think that would draw a lot of people. And my eighth match, just because I think it could potentially, looking at legends and greats and everything, I'm choosing 95's Flair versus Savage. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's not the best match, but I do think as people tie into 
superstars that they love. I think that there's a big following for Savage and there's a big following for Flair. Mm-hmm. And it would be criminal not to have Flair as the main event, I, I think. Okay. That's his slot. <laughs> Sounds good. The only thing that I regret is I, I was not able to get Steamboat on there. And I love that guy. That's why you do Steamboat Regal. That's why yep. you get on there, yeah. If there was a Steamboat Vader match, <laughs> a mythical match, I would have that. That in would there. be good. Yeah. That would be good. I will say a note on you're talking about Savage. So it is 2020 when we're recording this. I was at a gas station. They have a big display for Slim Jims, apparently a larger Slim Jim, and it has Randy Savage still on them. Nice. It's like a brand new thing. Nice. So it is still a thing in 2020. Yeah, Randy Savage Slim Jims. <laughs> a lot of my matches are going to sound very familiar, actually, I think. So here we go. Okay. Starcade 1998's Juventud Guerrera. Versus Rey Mysterio versus Billy Kidman. Sure. All right. Great opener. Really exciting. My second match was Starcade 1995's Eddie Guerrero versus Shinjiro Otani, which I'm I'm figuring that actually what they were fighting for in the first match was whether Eddie Guerrero would have to fight Shinjiro Otani or not. Ah, so, okay. Something like that. Oh. So so we still have a storyline going on Twists there. Just turns there. Yeah. That was such a great match. And apparently become a face in the meantime. But, you know, whatever. The third match, Starcade 1983, the dog collar match between Piper and Valentine. Uh, just that, just that has to be on there. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. that's so good. Fourth match, Starcade 1986, Rock and Roll Express versus the Andersons. Uh, it's on all three of ours, I believe. Understandably <laughs> and, so. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Fully warranted. Number five, Starcade 1985, Magnum TA versus Tully Blanchard. I'm also going for the TVMA <laughs> <Yeah>. Starcade. <laughs> Apparently so. Number six, Starcade 1993, Regal versus Steamboat. Yeah. I had to get Steamboat on my card. Absolutely. I was torn between that and the Briscoe tag match. I, I was really going back and forth between those, but Regal versus Steamboat uh, won out. For me, I, I decided I, I did I want to have that tag match and the Anderson. Yeah. One, yeah. There I want to have one of the yeah. Yeah. Seventh match, Starcade 1992. The King of Cable match, Vader versus Sting. Such a good I match. know I picked Flair versus Sting for my uh, matches of the series, but this one just fit better with my Starcade card. Sure. Because my main event match was Starcade 1988's Lex Luger versus Ric Flair. There you go. I knew I wanted to have Luger on there. I knew I wanted to have Flair on there, obviously. I mean, and I'm same as you, John. I felt like Flair's got to be the main event. You know, it's even though I said that's not a condition. It's a condition. <laughs> you know, so. I had to rework half the card to not choose Vader and Sting. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it was it was tough to choose on like, okay, you know, if I picked Flair versus Vader, that took out Flair, that took out Vader, that meant I couldn't choose Sting versus Vader. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was having a hard time picking the follow-up match for Sting that I really wanted to be on my card. He's been in a lot of good matches, but it wasn't like there wasn't like that super strong, awesome one that I definitely wanted to be on there. Where if I chose Vader versus Sting, I was like, Luger versus Flair is still awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a really, really great match. And it's a really great Luger match. Yeah, it is. So it gave me a great one for him. There were choices. It's oh, just, yeah, I was yeah. like, this feels like getting it to the highest level for both of them yeah. that I can get to for both of them. Yeah, I got you. For me, Sting, Rhodes, and Road Wars is such an efficient pick. It, it is It is very cool, yeah. <laughs> so that, that decides your whole card right there. Yeah. It, it kind of like messes with everything else. Yes, yeah. <laughs> All right, so now we're going to twist each other's cards slightly. 
Each of us will pick matches from our own card for each other to twist by giving those matches a new gimmick. Okay. It can be a wild and crazy gimmick if you want, or it can just be like, hey, wouldn't this be neat? So I will kick this off with one for Al. Sure. Let's say... Sure, what the heck. Al, Guerrero versus Itani. Ooh, um... Do it a ladder match, which would be great in its own, mm-hmm. but they are fighting for the greatest prize in the world, which is Sinjiro Tani's jacket. It's <laughs> a pretty sweet jacket. <laughs> you mean, you mean uh, Sasaki's jacket? That was, I know, the, Tani's the God, pretty the nice, too. Or, or, I know, okay. I like Tani's um, Top Gun sort of thing. Oh, yeah, 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 you're right, yeah, yeah. I mean, they couldn't be fighting for the America jacket, because he's not on the show anymore. Yeah, sadly, no. Yeah, it, it could be jacket versus jacket, actually, because Guerrero also had oh, his, uh, true. his white flames one. And that explained why it was occasionally the back of the shots earlier. Yeah, yep. It yep. hang out there. There you go, there jacket you go. versus there jacket ladder match. Okay, yep, that's good. And for John, um, I will have you do King of Cable, but it wasn't, wasn't really a gimmick match, it was just a brutal fight. So let's see, what, what, what would you turn King of Cable into as a gimmick? Sting, Sting Invader? Sting, Sting Invader, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh man, it would be like a weightlifting challenge. <laughs> there would be various machines brought into the thing, and whoever could do the most reps <laughs> with the percentage oh, of their gosh. weight would get to hit each other with that machine. Okay, or you know, use it in some creative fashion. I I, I don't know. It would be like I just want them to work out and then somehow battle each other <laughs> using there you those go. machines. Yeah, yeah. Why, why do I make the mistake of asking you a question and then taking a drink of water, by the way? That's a terrible mistake. <laughs> well, you might keep it cable-related. The mm-hmm. weights are long barbell, right. two giant CRT televisions. Oh, tents. okay. I thought you were going to go for like the weightlifting cables. No, uh, no, no. Those giant TVs. There you go. Okay. No, they just have to put together, reassemble a VCR <laughs> <laughs> in real time. Oh, my gosh. I've got a, an embarrassment of riches here on, on, on crazy gimmicks. <laughs> All right, uh, L. What one you want? Uh, what one you want me to do? Uh, okay, let's see. Wait, since it's on both of ours, what do you do with Ricky Steamboat and Steven Regal? Oh man, okay. It's with those two. It's hard to resist saying a ladder match, but I'm going to try and resist saying a ladder match. So let's see. Are we saying it's still for the still for the TV, TV titles? Yeah, still got the 15 minute thing. Hmm. And, well, it's there's still a time limit. You could make you could change the time limit. You know, it's yeah. Let's say it's a two out of three falls match. Okay. But both falls have to be accomplished within the total 15-minute time limit, or Regal just wins. Ah, okay. And also, you have to win in two different ways. Ah. So you, you, you can only win one by pinfall, one by submission, you know, one by countout, and uh, none of them can be by DQ, or you can win the match, but not the title anymore. <laughs> no top rope shenanigans. <laughs> Because Regal's like, you, you're not going to just get a fluke win or prove you're better than me in one way. He says to Steamboat, you've got to prove you're totally better than me. So this is the um, Batman versus Mr. Freeze fight. Yes. <laughs> you can only beat him that way once. Yeah, and there he you adapts. go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What do you want John to do? Okay, let's do... Do uh, DP versus Kurt Hennig for the U.S. title. I would do a... Black Mirror match, where you can only use the finishing moves of your opponent. <laughs> oh, wow! To get the pen. Okay, that's nice. So yeah. Kurt Hennig has to use the Diamond Cutter, mm-hmm. and and DDP has to use the Hennig Plex. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's just call it the Perfect Plex. That's a better name. Yes. 
I, I like that. I like yeah. that. That'd be creative. And that just shows that you have knowledge of your opponent. Yeah. And you have to each, in the beginning, deliver a speech in their voice, or like trying to mimic them, <laughs> their style. Oh, that, that'll be easy for DDP. All he has to say is perfect over and over. And throw a towel at me. And yes. Catch it. Yeah. yeah, you each get a minute of opening remarks and then mirror match. <laughs> I, I'm not saying they're switching clothes or anything, but... <laughs> I like that. It'd be interesting to see if DDP could work out as many like transitions into the headache plex as he can for the diamond cutter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that'd be cool. I like that. All right, John, what one do you want me to do? Uh, I'm only going to choose this one because I know you have such great reverence for the match. It, it's hard to rework it in my mind. Okay. So I'm going to ask you to do it. I want you to do the 1986 Rock and Roll Express versus oh, the Andersons. You can even obliterate the cage if you want or reuse the oh cage gosh, in a different way. Oh my gosh, you want way. me to mess with perfection. I know, exactly. That's, that's what oh, this is about. Let me pick me for that one. I had a perfect one for that. Oh, crap. Uh, let's say... Okay, 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 yeah, I, I, here's, here's an idea, okay. It's actually a standard tag match, except that it starts with a standard singles match okay. between two of the competitors, and whichever of those teams wins gets five minutes at the beginning of the match with the other team only having one competitor. Oh, so it's like a knockout rule. And it has to be the opposite competitor, so it'll be Arn Anderson and Robert Gibson starting this. And then, of course, Gibson will, unfortunately, through heelish cheating, lose that first match. Of course. And that means that Ricky Morton has five minutes of just pure selling against the team of the Andersons before Robert Gibson can even think of getting in. That'd be interesting. I realize that's not much of messing with the, the formula there, but it's let's make it a, an interesting conditional thing. It's a sort of deconstructed War Games match almost. Yeah, yeah. I, I honestly was thinking, how can I make this kind of War Games-ish <laughs> in, my, in my head? To get the high ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 gotta, I gotta say, Al, I, I am interested in hearing what your idea was. You want to hear my one? Go yeah, for it. yeah. Okay, so the match, as it happens, is a cage just above the rope, so it covers the area, right? right? Yeah. So they raise the cage a little bit, so it's just hanging slightly above where the ropes are. They have to fight in the ring and get a pinfall. Where it gets a pinfall, then it gets to climb up the inside of the cage, up across the ceiling to get through a hole in the top. Okay. It's a reverse cage match. Okay. They have to climb to the top of the cage to get out. There you go. That sounds uncannily like an idea from TNA. <laughs> it is similar to it. Yeah, that didn't go very well for them, but I'm sure the Anthony Andersons and the Rock and Roll Express could do it rather well. I just like the visual because there is like the cage that's around the ring. Here, it's just raised just above the ring, like just yeah. above where the ropes are at. So you can see a cage, but it's not interacting the match until you try to climb it. Okay. That's cool. All right. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it harkens back to the, the floating cage above the ring during the match. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they would not have it secured properly, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. don't think this would be safe at all. <laughs> oh, no, 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 yeah. Heavens no. What do you want him actually do? I want him to take my favorite people <laughs> and make them into a wonderful John-esque <laughs> match. Okay. Sting and Rhodes versus the Road Warriors and a one hawk. Oh, God. <laughs> all right, Okay, I have a idea. Um, let's take a match type that only one person actually liked once and then didn't really like the second time. Okay. Oh, I see where this is going. <laughs> I don't think you quite see where this is going. Okay. We have a version of the 
spring breakout scaffold match. So there's two scaffolds on the outside edge of the ring. Outside of the ring is not the people. It is a giant pool of water. All right. So you have to win by throwing them off the scaffold into the pool, which means you get the visual of Dusty Rose doing a belly flop and or a cannonball into a pool off a scaffold. I approve. But over tea kettle. Yes. Oh, of course. I yes, yes, of course. You got to fill that tea kettle with water. <laughs> yes. This makes sense. <laughs> I got to work a dragon's true leg open there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> That's nice. great. Yeah. Nice. I like that. There's not enough water sports in, in Stargate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you want to make the scaffold match a little more workable, to give it sort of an H design. Yeah, catwalk. So you've got two parallel scaffolds and then one connecting them. So if you want to have them fight in the middle and they're seen with sides, you can do that. So you have one road warrior on each side um, and then, you know, sitting and Dusty on one side. They could swap over. Okay. Uh, yeah, I like it. I would still be terrified as heck watching it, but, oh, yeah. but, I, but I like the idea. Unless they fall in water. Exactly. That's, that's the Yeah, better. yeah. In theory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hopefully. That wraps up our coverage of Starcade, WCW's first supercard, and our first as well. But it's not the end of Let's Go to the Ring. With our first series wrapped up, where are we going from here? Well, first up, before we started our Starcade run, we did a pilot of sorts to work out exactly how we were going to cover this stuff. So, next month, we're going to release that unaired pilot episode for your enjoyment. So it'll be a little flashback to where we began, and a little flashback to where Sting's career began as well. So coming up next month, Clash of the Champions 1. Next, while most of WCW's pay-per-views are in some series or another, there's quite a number of shows that aren't. We'd like to cover those as well, and we're going to do them between our various series. So this time, we're taking a look at the Bunkhouse Stampede from 1988. Mm -hmm. This type of match was referenced all over Starcade, so we've gotten really curious to see one, rather than just, say, hear it announced over the loudspeaker as Ric Flair tries to cut a promo, or hear it explained to us by a cowboy with soothing guitar music. So that'll be coming up in June, the Bunkhouse Stampede 1988. And now, our next series. We've been sitting here in the late 90s for a while, and frankly, we could use some time away from WCW's decline. So we're going to go back to the early days of WCW to watch. I want you at Wrestle War 91. World Championship Wrestling presents an ironclad event of man versus metal. Wrestle War 91 featuring War Game. We've declared war. Witness a grueling double steel cage confrontation where anything can happen. Don't miss the duel in the desert live from Phoenix, Arizona. You can be there front and center only on pay-per-view. Dismissed! <laughs> That's still the show of one of the Starcades. That's right. It is time for Wrestle War. Running for only four shows from 1989 through 1992, Wrestle War takes us back to the late 80s and early 90s, the early days of WCW and the latter days of its relationship with the NWA. Some things to get excited about on the series overall. We get Flair versus Steamboat. Nice. The Rock and Roll Express versus the Midnight Express in something other than a scaffold match. Hooray! And not one, but two War Games matches. 
Nice. I am really looking forward to covering this set. So, our upcoming releases are, in May, Clash of the Champions 1, in June, Bunkhouse Stampede 1988, and in July, starting our new series with WrestleWar 89, Music City Showdown. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about the Starcades that we've reviewed. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review, and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to Pro Wrestling History and OSW Review for attendance, closed circuit, and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Thank you all for listening to us during our first series, and we hope to provide you with much more entertainment as we go forward into WCW's other shows. Mm -hmm. And in these trying times, may you be blessed with peace, comfort, safety, and health. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen and John Mullins, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. And don't count to three on that pinfall. (laughs) Just roll out. Tuck and roll. (laughs) 